together we will cleanse the earth. Everything they've built will fall! And from the ashes of their world, we'll build a better one! I've never felt power like this before. This is a high-profile case. You've seen this girl? Name's Amelia. Who's in it for me? We can do this the easy way. We're currently doing it the easy way. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, Rob Daniel, editor as always of electric-shadows.com. As always as well, I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by my learned colleague, Mr. Rob Wallace. Uh, pleasure to be here as always. Uh, I am editor at The Metropolis, well, film and TV editor, and of my own blog, of all the film blogs, uh, hopefully, and I'm going to keep saying this shortly to become, of all the film sites. I'm going to keep saying it because I'm sure that if I keep saying it, it will happen. It will happen, yes. The universe will take note. Did you say blonk then? I could have said <laughs> blonk. I will only, we'll only, we'll know when we play it back. We will know when, when we play it back, but it could have been blonk, but anyway. A blonk by you, Robert, would be a wonderful thing indeed. Thank you, sir. Um, cool. So today we are going to talk about two films. One that is currently out on general release as I speak, X-Men Apocalypse. And the other is coming out in a couple of weeks of recording, and that is The Nice Guys. I believe it's out on June 3rd. I believe that... Joel Silver, at the screening that we went to on Tuesday, told us that it was out on June 3rd. Just some name-dropping there. Joel, uh, good, good guy. Good guy, Joel. Good guy. Who yeah, yeah. you know else was a good guy at that screening? Russell Crowe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and Shane Black. Shane Black was and, good as well. And uh, Matt Bomer. He was... He was good as well. Yeah. All and great guys, you know. Fabulous bunch of people. Fabulous bunch of people. The little girl from the film, can't remember her name, but she was alright as well. Russell Crowe brought his own microphone. Did you notice that? No, I didn't notice that. Out of all the rest of them, the little girl at the end, they all did a couple of lines each, and the little girl at the end tried to give the microphone to Russell Crowe, only to realise he had his own. I did not see that. Wow. <laughs> he goes with his own microphone now, because he, everyone must hear what, what Russell says. Russell Crowe was all right at that, I thought. It was actually kind of... It's weird, isn't it? You refreshing. See, it was refreshing. He was. He seemed pretty down-to-earth. No one got a phone through at them. He or, didn't quote any poetry. Or, you know, a very small phone. A microphone, one could say. Oh, very good. Um, it's not, it's not, but this is the level we're at now. So. Yeah, it's a, we're already, yeah, two minutes in. It's, uh, but it's weird, isn't it, when you kind of watch these people. He is very, he is a movie star, and it's like, you have been a bit of a tit in the past, but you're still great at what you do, and I'm still excited to see you, Russell Crowe, announce and introduce this movie in that way I mean this might be being I don't know who, who, who this it feels like it's being harsh to someone I'm not quite sure who uh, either yeah he is well, the equivalent of Val Kilmer in this film as Val Kilmer was to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and would you say their careers are at vague well are at vaguely similar points you know comparatively you know at the, at the point that Val Kilmer was in 2007 no um, because in 2007, and we were talking about the, about the nice guys after X-Men Apocalypse, but just this little bit now. In 2007, Val was having to earn his crust making quite a few straight-to-DVD movies. Oh, wow, year. I thought that was a more recent development. No, he was doing that in 2007 through till 2000. Well, he might still be doing it, but I think he hit a creative peak of straight-to-DVD-ism in about 2009-ish or something. I just remember 
working um, at Sky Movers at that point and just watching so many Val Kilmer films where he'd clearly been there for on set for a week to film his scenes and yeah, picked up a cheque, got top billing, went on to the next piece of shit and it was like, Val, why is this happening? Are you, you that unemployable You were now? Jim Morrison. You were Doc Holliday. You were Batman. You were, you were Top Gun. You were... He was Chris in Heat. Yeah, exactly. He was the coolest yeah. man in Heat, and Heat is one of the coolest and best films. Um, and and what happened? Um, yeah, and he was Batman, and he was in Top Secret as well. And he was, was um, he Top Secret. Yeah, not even who was he in Top Gun? Yeah, Iceman. Iceman. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So he was literally cool. Anyway, so uh, so no, I would say that, say that Russell Crowe has a better career than Val Kilmer did then, and arguably does. What's the most recent thing that Val Kilmer's done? Good question. I mean, it feels like off the top of my head, without having to look at IMDb. Um, Winter's Tale. Was he in that? Yeah, he's like wow. the bad guy in or the, the this demon with an Irish accent. Uh, Pearly Soames. Wow, that's good knowledge for Val Kilmer's. Oh no! Oh no! That's Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Yeah, oh, right, oh, right, oh yeah, right. Val Kilmer's most recent oh, thing is some guard. Okay, um, uh, just TV. Sorry, just just the TV. The last film was Paolo Alto. Paolo Alto. Oh, in 2013. Yeah. He played Stuart. Um, oh, Stuart. We are Gia Coppola, presumably one of the Coppolas, starring Emma Roberts, James Franco, Jack Kilmer. Jack Kilmer was in something else recently. He was. A Kilmer kid who was in something. What was he in? Something that I watched, and it's like, oh, that's Val Kilmer's kid. Um, it was the Nice Guys, <laughs> of course. He was um, fucking yes. Chet. Yes, he. Yes, of course he was. Jesus, we will get onto that in just a moment. Um, yes, believe it or not, we actually do plan on starting this podcast with a discussion of Brian Singer's latest X Men film, X Men Apocalypse. But yeah, Russell Crowe was good. Val Kilmer needs to get a career back because he's good but if you watch that film which is called it's on Netflix the one Twixt uh, no the one about the making of um, the making of the island of Dr. Oh Moreau. Lost Soul Lost Soul that is fantastic in terms of wow you would never want to work with Val Kilmer he sounds like well back then when he was coming off of Batman and was one of the biggest movie stars in the world he sounded pretty hard work Yes, uh, I, the film I mentioned, Twixt, uh, is one of the by far one of the worst films I've ever seen, starring Val Kilmer, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. At some point, I will force you to watch it, Rob, and we will drink heavily and probably record a podcast whilst under the effects of alcohol because it's probably the best way to do uh, to watch that film is to talk over it and drink until you can't see. Because see, I was I said before that I will never watch Twix because I love The Godfather, I love Apocalypse Now, I love The Conversation, really like Tucker the Man and His Dream, and it's a real shame what's happened to Coppola. And it was so much fun just listening to you talk about this film, which sounds like an absolute, not a hot mess, a cold, putrid mess. Um, um, but, yeah, to return to, if uh, if everyone here, we've talked about Alden Ehrenreich, who was recently cast as Han Solo. Yep, indeed. Uh, he's in it. A fact yeah. that I only recently rediscovered. Yes, he plays a vampire, a teenage vampire, you know, leather jacket wearing, hangs out by a lake, called Flamingo. Yeah, it's that sort of thing where it's like, I... 
you get into your into your early forties, and you realise that one day in a relatively short amount of time you're going to merge with the infinite, <laughs> and there's only a, f- a few amount of films again in the grand scheme of things that you will be able to watch. And a Coppola film that you've said is one of the worst things you've ever seen and it has a vampire in it called Flamingo just might not make the cut. <laughs> I just don't know. But then again, it does sound quite good if you get pissed and record a podcast saying how shit it is. We should also do a podcast where we watch Apocalypse Now and say how amazing it is. <laughs> it is right, one of the great films. It should possibly be the same podcast. We could have them playing next to each other <laughs> and say, look at that. Oh, it's so brilliant. Don't look to the right. Don't look to the right. <laughs> Keep your eyes shut on the right. <laughs> um... Yes, anyway, so without any further ado, probably now, let's get on to the latest film from the X-Men franchise, X-Men Apocalypse. I just like saying it like that. The Brian Singer, back as director after the success of X-Men, Days of Future Past, and of course X-Men and X-Men 2, or X2 to give it the on-screen title. Rob, what is the story of X-Men Apocalypse? Well, again, trying to put on my... uh... With the emergence of the world's first mutant apocalypse, the men, the, and the men, the X-Men, must unite to defeat his extinction-level plan. Just not just the men, because I think he shot Brando. Yeah. Yes, uh, the Brando <laughs> film, The Men. I would watch that. I would watch films about <laughs> wounded war veterans coming back to fight apocalypse. And of course, there is a reference in here to a certain war and an element of that that maybe was not that well judged, which we, which we shall get on to. So, X-Men Apocalypse. I was thinking when I was watching X-Men Apocalypse, I will stop saying it like that, but it's quite catchy. Um, we have the X-Men franchise to thank, maybe, for all of the superhero films we have right now. Because we had Superman, and we had Batman, and the Batman franchise had just degenerated into just the awful tack of Batman and Robin and it seemed that only DC could actually make a superhero film that could get released at the cinema and then suddenly kind of from nowhere X-Men came out in 2000 and it was really good and surprising and it looked a bit like a film noir and it had a certain weird kind of noirish take on what a superhero film could be. And I think it struck kind of the perfect tone in a way that, you know, obviously uh, Superman and and the early Batmans had their very definite take on the character and, you know, there were other sort of, you know, there have been a handful of other sort of Spawn. Spawn was prior to X-Men. But Spawn was awful. Yeah. And it was... Uh, Spawn looks awful now in terms of its special effects. It was that kind of the birth of CGI when you had to spend $100 million on your effects to have anything that looked halfway decent, and if you spent under that, you would have... Literally $1 under that. <laughs> Literally $1 under that, and you had something that looked like Saturday Night Vomit. And Spawn at the time looked awful, and now looks worse than the effects in like you know, a silent movie. It looks... You can't believe that people would have seen that at the cinema and gone, that's fine. Wow, yeah, that's... Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so, uh, X-Men succeeded in striking a very definite tone in terms of, you know, it was serious, or it treated the subject matter seriously without being po-faced yeah. or... And and it, and it had a, and it did have the sense of fun and, you know, the, these are, are essentially people, you know, it's a comic book, you know, yeah. the, these people have powers, they're not meant to 
exist in the same universe as Travis Bickle or something. Or to go back, you know, to, as nine eleven to yeah, return yeah, yeah, to... indeed, yeah, it's kind of uh, to return to Batman versus Superman, which of course is the it's weird, isn't it? That is just the kind of like the low, the low, low benchmark yeah. that every single superhero film uh, this year will be compared to. Yeah, and that's the thing. I, I remember seeing X Men with a mate and us having read the pretty good reviews. But watching it and thinking, one, that this is a really, really well-directed film, and Brian Singer's directing this like he's doing a sequel to The Usual Suspects. That's really interesting. There's that great scene at the beginning with Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, and it was kind of like, you would always get the English actors in films to give it a, uh, yeah, a bit yeah, of gravitas. But not in a film when they were playing superheroes and supervillains, and then suddenly they were doing this, but they were treating it like it was Pinter. And it was like, this is, okay, this is interesting, and they are playing this dead straight, and these are proper characters that they are inhabiting, and wow, this works really well. And then you have Hugh Jackman, or Hugh Jackson, who is this person who's just going around earning his money from cage fighting or like barroom brawling and stuff, and it just seemed like, okay, this is is interesting, I don't know... I don't really know anything about the X-Men when I saw it, and uh, this is an interesting way to approach this world, just playing it absolutely straight and playing it on location. It's also one of those times when... I can't believe they got permission to shoot at the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's like <laughs> of, uh, whereas now they probably would do. <laughs> um, but it was also one of those things that... Uh, it was back when you weren't used to seeing superheroes fighting in, like, kind of for want of a better phrase, like, yeah, three dimensions. It was like, yeah, gravity was no obstacle for these people, so they would just fly around and fight. Oh. And there was, was it Toad? Was he the, yes, the uh, one played by, by Ray, Ray Parks? Parks. Um, is Park? Park? Ray Park, I think yeah. you're right, yeah. I just remember there's a fight with him at the end, and I can't remember who was fighting, but they are just flying around because He's that's... He's fighting Park. Storm. Storm, okay, right, yes. Yes, that makes complete sense. Hence, the, leading to the immortal line, you know what happens when a toad gets, toad gets struck by lightning, same thing that happens to everyone, everything else. Oh, well, you, you do remember it better than I do. And uh, uh, a script written by Joss Whedon. Yes, and that's right, yes, indeed. Um, probably the worst, single worst line that Joss Whedon has ever written. <laughs> Which is, yeah, almost impossible for Joss Whedon to put a bad line to, to screen. I'm sure he's put them to paper, but he, I'm sure he's a very good editor as well. But yeah, so it was like, it was the effects were really good. The kind of sense of the mission that they had to do in landing this world with an audience was good because of course they had their black cool uh, jumpsuits and yeah Wolverine makes a surly comment about it and Cyclops at one point says would you prefer yellow spandex and it's like ha ah. of course then you get to X-Men First Class and they're wearing yellow, yellow spandex. spandex and it doesn't look out of place because we're now so used to seeing proper superhero imagery on screen that not everyone has to be wear- yeah, wearing black and it's interesting they, they still haven't dispensed with the obligatory Opening narration that, that they throw, you know, mutants, blah, 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 blah. Yes, that's right. Yes, they still do that in, in Apocalypse, don't they? they? They keep having to, yeah, we'll get kind of explain mutants. Because <laughs> it's like, well, these films have made a couple of billion now or something. They've certainly cleared a billion in how, many, in how much money they've made around the world. I think people know what, what mutants are in the X Men world. But um, then I think, well, is this like just part of the the fun of these movies, the same way that you, I don't know, you have the Bond thing at the beginning of Down the Gun Barrel, that it will just explain it because it's welcoming you into the world, the same way that, yeah, during the 80s you would have the opening narration to Knight Rider or something like that, maybe. 
it's quite cosy and comforting, I think, when you watch an X Men film. It's like, oh, we, yeah, we're back in this universe. But instead, you get Patrick Stewart or James McAvoy explaining, you know, very fictionalised takes on Darwinian concepts. Yes, indeed. It's, uh, <laughs> which is, yeah, the science in the X Men films is on par with the science of Captain America's shield, isn't it? It's kind of like, yeah, the physical, the laws of physics do not hand wavium. Hand wavium, yes. It's, <laughs> But yeah, so it, and then there was X two, which everyone kind of said it's always you know it's better than the first one, and I think they're about the same. But it means it's another good film. It has that great sequence with Nightcrawler at the beginning when he breaks into the White House. And the thing is, you know, they they made obviously made the first Wolverine film, Wolverine Origins. Mm. That's just X two. X two is Wolverine Origins. That yeah, gives you yeah, everything like, you yeah. actually need to know about the character. That's so true. It's uh, yeah, we'll get on to X Men Origins Wolverine in a bit. Have no fear. Ooh, anyway, there's also that other great scene in X2 when Stryker's force, his, I don't know, tactical anti-mutant team, attack the mansion, the school for gifted children. And that's a really great scene in terms of a great action scene. But also, in again, it was just at that point where we weren't used to seeing lots and lots of superheroes on screen, so there was still some real surprise when... I remember that moment when that girl screams and then drops through the bed. Is she, is she Kitty? No, I, I, I think she was meant to be Kitty. And I yeah, yeah. They, uh, but just didn't give her a name. It's, yeah, they, uh, they wreck on that, obviously, in the next film. Yes, yes, that's right. It's, um, but no, which is something, luckily, that the X-Men franchise never did again. No, no it's like, yeah, <laughs> never went back and tried to change anything after that. Um, no, that does seem to be its, its MO right now, doesn't it? It's, um, but anyway, yeah, so then, um, because of X-Men, it's, uh, because of the you know, the tidy sum of money that made, it was um, Sony interested in doing Spider-Man, and uh, and then you had you know, Warner's looking at Batman again, and and here we are. Is it too bold a claim to say if there wasn't the original X-Men film, we wouldn't have the superhero subgenre of action films that we have right now? Yeah, I think if you're going to divide, obviously, to return to, let's not call them phases, because that's going to be waves. If you talk about waves of superhero films, then arguably you could say that the, the, the first wave of superhero films probably stopped with Batman v Superman. Uh, Batman, Batman and Robin, sorry. Yep. You could say that the second wave, the modern superhero film as we now know it, was kicked, was started with X-Men. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And is that a wave that's still continuing? Or, or did it start a game with Iron Man when Marvel properly got involved? Well, I'd say that it... I mean... No, I think I think it's been continuing with X Men because, unlike uh, the, any superhero films before that, even even you know Batman and Batman Returns, they had continuity. Yep, yep, indeed. Oh, so, uh, yeah, because the X Men franchise is the birth of continuity in superhero films. Yeah, which... yeah, yeah, indeed. Because the Wolverine films are not standalone movies, are they? They are. I mean, the Wolverine, I think, is is as close as you get to a standalone movie within an X Men film. But there's still his nightmares about. Gene and what happened to Gene, and that's a direct continuation from X Men Three. Yeah, um, him experiencing the, tr- the trauma the of the trauma of losing Gene in X Men Last Stand. Spoiler: Don't worry, she was out years ago. Don't worry, she's back now. Yeah, and that's the thing is that no one dies in any superhero film, particularly the X Men films. Um, yeah, so then X Men Last Stand, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say X Men Apocalypse is pretty much the new wave of X-Men movies, X-Men Last Stand. Yeah. It's third in the in the kind of like official cycle of uh, the X-Men trilogies. It all gets a bit complicated, but you could call this part three of a trilogy, even though it's not, it's really. It has a pretty disposable, ill-thought-through main story. <laughs> 
but lots of really good subplots going on and lots of actually I thought we yeah, had quite good action scenes in both those films it's just you get to the end of it and say ultimately that didn't make much sense and it's, yeah, it's big and silly and a lot of fun yeah it's big yeah, yeah that's it it's big it's silly it's spectacular in some places some quite crap effects in others angels in both of them and ultimately who's, who's, the story who, who's gone from being Ben Foster to <laughs> that lad from EastEnders Ben who, something or other yeah, it's. I think it's. Um, it's contractual that they have to have a Ben play Angel, um, but uh, it is of course Ben Hardy. Ben Hardy, who was born in Bournemouth in ninety one. Wow, the year that Terminator Two came out. Um, and uh, yes, of course, learned his craft on one hundred and eighty nine episodes of EastEnders as Peter Beale. Thought he was pretty good. Yeah, right. It's kind of. I mean, he, you know, in the very little character he had to play, it was kind of. I thought he made a certain impact, not just because he's got a massive pair of wings, but uh, but apart from sort of the main three, you know, obviously, you know, Professor X, Magneto, and Mystique, and maybe Beast. Yeah. Nobody really has much of a character to play. No, it's weird, isn't it? It's kind of like it is one of those films where the the central characters do a dance and they do a continuous dance and it's just that sometimes they change partners and but those are always temporary partners before they come back to the original groupings of uh, of those of those characters because um, you know uh, the, the team has always been very changeable and a lot and mostly most team members have been disposed between first class and days of future past they basically wipe out they wipe they wipe out the t- they wipe the slate clean yeah, there was yeah, like a, quite a few of the um, less memorable characters, but also um, Rose Byrne didn't make it to Days of Future Past, but she's back for this one as Moira McTaggart, who in First Class has a really great Austin Powers scene where she kind of <laughs> basically walks around in her underwear and things are kind of like yeah, blocking her room bits. But yeah, I kind of thought it's funny when this film started because uh, we saw this film after your birthday meal, and it was like. Yeah, it was really nice. It was a really nice meal. Now we're going to go and watch the X Men film. Okay, fine. That's that's fine. And you know, it's not it's not a screening where famous people are going to introduce it. Um, we might have been the most famous people there. So <laughs> just how few, how there was no fame. There were no famous people there. Everybody else was literally nobody. Everybody else was literally nobody, and we weren't famous either. <laughs> it was an ordinary screening at the O2, and it started. And I have to admit, at the beginning of this film, so. Apocalypse is the first mutant, I think we're led to believe, and uh, he is being worshipped as a god in Egypt and is going to have these amazing powers bestowed on him so he can yeah, basically bring about the end of the world and the rebirth of a new world in, in his image. And it's all taking place in a pyramid, and it's all, I thought, very Stargate SG-1 or kind of just... Just very Stargate, really, and it's like, okay, right, so there's lots of Egyptian stuff here, and there's lots, you know, lots of science fiction kind of fantasy. Of course, it all goes horribly wrong because it's all set, was it 4,000? 3,500, yeah, 3,500 BC. Yeah, it's, um, so of course, it all goes horribly wrong, and he doesn't fulfill his destiny at that point because we all know it's going to happen during the 1980s. And that was just a bit of a shonky opening all round, wasn't it? Because it's like, well, pfft. Really this has never, to happen because yeah, I never really thought the Stargate worked. <laughs> it was never my favourite franchise. We have to set this up, and I never, I don't know, I never really find 
I know it's supposed to be like, yeah, the cradle of civilization, etc., etc. But always, I should never find Egypt particularly interesting on screen. Um, I think because visually it is overplayed. Yeah. It is the New York of ancient worlds, isn't it? <laughs> Probably a fairly apt comparison. But then, but also, I mean, this, yeah, clearly, yeah, these films, I don't know, have now a $200 million budget as standard. The $200 million was spent elsewhere in this film, not at the beginning of the film, because it looked pretty... Mummy Returns. Very Mummy Returns. It looked like Mummy Returns. The outdoor scenes of the pyramid, although it was very kind of... Again, you're saying, like, yeah, the first X-Men film came out 16 years ago. It was very much in, like, a throwback to that time of... Which, you know, ironically wasn't in the first X-Men film, but was all over the place in the Mummy films and... And those sort of films, those overblown, sweeping, kind of impossible crane shots achieved with a virtual camera. Lots of sweeping around and swooping and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we'll just drop down the pyramid and pass the big flapping banner that's on this pyramid. Everything is going to look very, very cartoony or very, very PlayStation 2 or The Mummy Returns, which is the perfect example of that. And then we're going to have lots of destruction and like, big yeah, boulders and slabs are going to fall down. People getting crushed. And... People... But it's like, well, the big boulders and slabs just look so, so fake. It was like, ah, oh, this this is The Mummy Returns. And then it kind of sets out its stall in its violence at the very beginning, doesn't it? Because it's a pretty bloody opening and there's... Someone gets immolated and kind of uh, his you know, burning face is right at the front of the camera. We didn't see it in 3D, but I imagine in 3D that was quite a vivid moment, but... And yeah, people get flayed, and somebody basically gets cubed, cubed, <laughs> yeah, gets crushed into a into certain wince-inducing right angles. Yeah, he probably he wasn't okay. He wasn't okay. That's right. Yeah, so he was going to need to have a rest after that. And so that was a bit kind of. Mm. And then you whip through to present day, and it's good. Well, actually, no, not not, not towards present day, nineteen eighty three, and. Uh, then you have the story starting proper, and it's like, and I have to admit, that first bit was like, oh, God, it's okay, right, so we have to sit through this, then I'll leave for two hours, and am I really interested in the X-Men films anymore? And uh, I have to admit, within ten minutes of being in the 80s period, it was like, oh, yeah, I really enjoy the X-Men films. <laughs> I like this world that he's created. I like the characters in it. I like, I just think that these are interesting characters. And this one I kind of thought had a, because it, Follows on directly from Days of Future Past, or not about a decade sorry, later. Yeah, sorry, yeah, it's not directly at all. A decade later, but say that Quicksilver has aged very well, considering that's ten years later. He is he is not aged a day, and as you were saying earlier, if he's does he age at a faster rate than everyone else because he is moving faster than everyone else, and everyone else is really slow, so therefore always actually stop. So you presume they're not aging. Yeah, how is he not aging? Or is it? I don't know. Anyway. I think I don't know that really ruined the suspension of disbelief for me. I was yeah, just something. That's what kept me up. That's what kept me distracted the entire film. I was like, why is he not really old? But you're back in this world. And yeah, I kind of thought this is... It's interesting what they've done with Eric, you know, the Magneto character. Again, played by Michael Fassbender. Who's tried to find some peace after the events of Days of Future Past. And obviously cannot be allowed to have obviously that not be for allowed narrative to have purposes. That. And has kind of gone back to, um, or has returned to uh, to Eastern Europe. Yeah, and for narrative purposes will be shown a little bit of peace and a little bit of a happy life. But you're sure at some point things are going to go 
a little bit awry. His story kind of reminded me of the opening of X-Men with Wolverine, where it was like, this is someone who is... No, maybe, like, yeah, in a way, it's kind of like, here's someone who's tortured, but is kind of... He seems to be an okay guy who is trying to move on and trying to... Live a life. Live a life, yeah. Even though there are certain things that are stopping him from doing that. And that was really interesting. You've got James McAvoy playing Professor X, Charles Xavier. Um, and again, it's kind of like, I just like watching him. And actually, Patrick Stewart played the older version of the character as well. I just like watching Professor X on screen. I think he's a, he's a really great, noble character. He's, you know, he's what your superhero should be. He's kind of... Uh, He's 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 dignified without having a stick up his ass. Yep. He's a good teacher with a sense of fun. Yeah. He's yeah. He, you know. He's somebody that you would you know that you would like to have been like to be taught by. Yes, indeed. Yeah. These films now are getting into a certain groove of we will introduce we will show someone's origin story, and in this film it's Cyclops and Storm as well, isn't it? You kind of see Storm's kind of origin story. And kind of Jean Grey, but... Yeah, yeah, indeed. It's um, Actually, there are quite a few origin stories here. But it's weird, isn't it? Because we kind of know a lot of these characters anyway. Or because, all the characters. Yeah, because, you know, it's kind of like next... Gen, it, it's first gen and next gen. Because they are re- they're introducing younger versions of characters you already know again. Yes. In the context of them being taught by older versions of the younger characters that were introduced back in first class who are nevertheless still younger than the versions that were in the original X-Men. There will be a test at the end of this, so you better be taking notes. I hope, you, hope you're drawing your timelines. I hope you're drawing your timelines. Um, and actually, of course, we have Nightcrawler as well, the Kurt, Kurt Wagner, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, who actually I really like as an actor. I think he's, he's a very he's, watchable He's very good actor. and slow vest. He's very good, <laughs> he's very good and slow vest, yeah. Uh, he, of course, he is speaking with his German accent. Sorry. <laughs> I can't. Trust I me, we spared, you, we spared you a lot of that. Yeah, indeed. We could have done this all like that and just seen how long people would have said, stop, I confess. Um, <laughs> yeah, looking, but, looking back at the playback stats, stage, like, that's the point everybody stopped. That's the point everybody stopped and actually un- unsubscribed. <laughs> um, so disgusted they were. Yeah, so you kind of, and it kind of, Throws you into it with, um, yeah, Kurt and Angel or Nightcrawler and Angel. Um, they were having to cage fight for the. And I quite like that that there was a that in certain areas of the world, yeah, mutants were kind of being treated like slaves. Still, they were having to fight for um, for the pleasure of the norms. And that's a shout back to well, call back to two separate X Men films because obviously there's cage fighting in the first X Men film. Mm-hmm. And to Blob, the guy that fought, the guy that uh, Angel defeats when we first see him in the cage is uh, Blob, who uh, was in X Men Origins. Oh, uh, played by yes. um, Kevin Durand. Yes, that's right. Yes, well, that's that was a very good spot. It's, yeah, I completely forgot about him, but it's one of those. See, that's the thing about the X Men films is that because I read some of the comics when I was a kid, and then well, recently I read some of them when like yeah, Marvel released those yeah, monthly hardbacks. I read the Dark Phoenix storyline and thought that was, that was very good. But it's one of those things where you are seeing characters and you know that they are a major character or something and they have a whole name and like a whole backstory, blah, blah, blah. And he was someone I thought, I must remember to ask Rob who that was and I completely forgot, but thank you, that was Blob. But Cyclops gets the kind of like, yeah, the proper origins, I suppose, in terms of the, yeah, you see him first with his powers and... Yeah, that was good. It's kind of, uh, I think it's one of those things where you know the characters well enough that it's just nice to have that little bit where you see them 
on the cusp of getting their powers and you know, seeing it as a curse as much as a blessing, etc., etc. So this does kind of follow on from X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, Days of Future Past kind of expunged or literally expunged X-Men Last Stand from existence. And kind of ambiguously rewrote X-Men and X-Men and X2. Yeah, it did. It's kind of like, I have to admit, I'm not entirely sure of the ways that it did all of that. And there's a there's one moment in here that definitely sets up a character for the beginning or for the sorry, the first X-Men movie, it could be the next day that that happens. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it will be interesting. I'm sure there's going to be someone who's going to do a very, very complicated diagram of the storylines of these and the different timelines of these and how they converge and diverge and et cetera, et cetera. But it's, I think right now I'm kind of not thinking about it it's too just kind closely of... in terms of how this relates to other films. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. It is wibbly wobbly timey wimey. It's as and when the plot needs it. So I suppose here, it's kind of, yeah, so it, it was good to see X-Men, it's good to see them, as, and it's nice to see what they're doing, and you kind of get, um, yeah, certain characters are drawn to Apocalypse. School for Gifted Children, and others are drawn to Apocalypse, um, so Apocalypse has his four horsemen, has to come back, has his four horse persons of the Apocalypse. Horse people, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, that, that just, yeah, they're not centaurs, we need to... Yeah, it's... Um, so shall we get on to the fact that this hasn't been a particularly well-reviewed X-Men film? And it's actually, I think, the worst-reviewed X-Men film since, since X-Men Origins. Yes, yeah, I would. And I don't think it deserves that. No, I don't think so. I think it's, um, if we have to put a yeah, star rating on it, and let's face it, we do, it's three stars. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a completely down-the-middle, you know, sublime and ridiculous. The overall story is pretty much bunkum, but within that you get... Lots of nice subplots, same as X-Men Last Stand. The characters are, are much more well-written and actually better acted than in X-Men Last Stand. There's no Vinnie Jones in this one <laughs> with his line. Shall we? I just thought that was your cue. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm the juggernaut, bitch! <laughs> so bad. Although, actually, you do it much better than he did. <laughs> yeah, I watched this thinking, Empire obviously gave this two stars after having it on the front cover three times in the last year. It feels like that was just backpedalling. That was just... I don't know. I, I, just, I couldn't see quite why they gave it two. But a friend who said it was good but brutal and very slow. And I didn't think it was slow. I, I thought, thought it was pretty nippy, actually. I thought it was quite nippy. I thought it moved along at a, at a fair pace and that the, the moments where the plot kind of slowed down to, to tell some backstory or just take a breather or to have like an emotional beat, I didn't think. We're, ent- we're entertaining enough in their own right that it yeah. wasn't... And there's a nice moment when they go to see Return of the Jedi and say, like, you know, you know the third one's always the worst. And it's like, yeah, is that <laughs> X-Men Last Stand or this one you're referring yeah. to? It's kind of a... Do you think you're being ironic or are you... Oh, yeah, it's like, it's, like, it's like, are you making a joke about, ha, huh, imagine if this was the worst one, or are you saying, this is the worst one, come on guys, we know, we all know it. Yeah, and it's like, but then I kind of thought, well, this doesn't really work, because this isn't the end of a trilogy. There will be another one of these films. These films are just going to continue now. It's like, we have, I think we, we have moved beyond X-Men trilogies. It's kind of... Uh, it's not like there's a, a built-in act structure now. No, it's kind of, it's just going to be another adventure, another adventure, another adventure... You know, weirdly, with these films, I think you can slough off characters who don't, because the actor doesn't want to come back and play that role anymore, much more easily than, say, with the Marvel MCU and Captain America and Iron Man. Oh, because that team is so regimented. They've spent so long establishing them. 
it, and you know the, the X-Men film when it starts you know they are the X-Men from that first film but they each have you know they each have their character beats within that and you know sort of play them out over the next couple of films that you don't need to establish them because none of the characters are expected to hold a film in their own right yeah and I think when um, yeah, when Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy have had enough of these films, they'll leave. There will be someone else who comes along and plays them, and it, and it might be like a different timeline. It could be like Doctor Who or something, where you'll get like yeah, they'll go to like an older version, and they'll kind of like yeah, set it in the future a bit, and then it will go back again. And I think with this, oh, that's one, what they're doing with the third Wolverine. Yes, yeah. So that's going to be Old Man Wolverine, isn't it? It's going to, and is it, is that going to be based on the most recent Wolverine story, the one where something very dramatic happens? Uh, Old Man Logan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping it's based on Old Man Logan, and that that reportedly will feature Professor X. Yeah. Who, presumably being played by Patrick Stewart, or else an aged up James McAvoy. Hopefully, it's Patrick Stewart. You don't need an aged up because you do have the older version and of still, this character. Still available. Yeah, still available. And I think if the script's good enough, he will do it, and he should do it, because let's face it, we all love Patrick Stewart. So that's, yeah, it's interesting with this, because this could just run and run until... The wheels fall off. Until the wheels fall off, yeah. It's, um, and right now, on the basis of this, I could... I Well, you know, I thought that The Wolverine, the Wolverine film that was set in Japan, was the best superhero film of that year. I'm sure what the competition was. I think it was huge, but it was like, here's a superhero film that doesn't end with buildings toppling. For a superhero film, the action is quite grounded, so it's it's a fight on a on a bullet train and it's like yes that's really spectacular but it's not a fight in the air between lots of planes or something like that or jumping between planes or helicopters this has some physics to it and some, and played... some rules and a sense of yeah containment well if Captain America the Winter Soldier was a superhero was a 1970s conspiracy thriller done as a superhero film this was a 1970s Yakuza thriller done as a superhero film, um, crossed with a Japanese you know, big robot movie. It will be interesting to see what the future for this is, but I am looking forward to the next Wolverine film and then yeah, whatever comes I, afterwards in I terms of this. I also think that they have some freedom with the next Wolverine film, because if they're doing 10-year time jumps, as, you know, presumably the next X-Men film is set in the 90s. Yeah. So they'll be clad in double denim. <laughs> um, and almost getting to the point where they started, because it's like, are you thinking it was the late 90s? Really, the, the first X Men film was set in, but anyway, yeah, yeah. and we'll be clad in double denim, and there'll be grunge and skateboards yeah. and skateboards, yeah, and kind of, uh, yeah, be alright. Um, but if they, you know, if they are setting uh, Old Man Wolverine, Old Man Logan in the future, you know, a, a sufficient time jump from the present day, that does give them the freedom to, uh, in the same way they did in the future sections of X Men: Days of Future Past, to essentially dispense with whomever they want and have done. And you know, and do whatever they want because they're not obliged to keep it because, or because it's so in such you know so distantly in the future that it doesn't hugely matter. It'll be interesting in that context, but won't have a impact on the broader X Men U, X M U, X M U, the X M U. Okay, the X M U is what we're going to call it. The X Men universe is now just the X M U. Okay, so going back to the point that this is still quite a poorly received X-Men movie in terms of the critical response. Um, just going to look up the Rotten Tomatoes uh, score for it. What were the issues that you had with this film? It, 
it's one of those films that is difficult to pinpoint because it's not doing one specific thing wrong or anything majorly wrong. It's just lots of little pieces that aren't quite as good as they could be. It's it's not egregious in its wrongness. No. It's um well it's weird, isn't it? Because it's it's kind of like kind of like an, an X Men Origins film in terms of because of the, the time jumping of Days of Future Past when they go back to the seventies and it seems rewrite the rule book in terms of uh, so yeah, mutants are discovered in in the seventies at, at the Paris Peace Accords for the Vietnam War and lots of interesting things I think I thought were done with that in terms of the kind of the real accurate yeah, the, the actual historical race concerns of the time and uh, and the yeah, difference and the fear of of the foreigner and things like that and I thought that was actually quite a nice backdrop to have this X Men film and. At the end of Days of Future Past, I thought there was like a real sense that something had changed and that everyone's future was now going to be very different because of this yeah, discovery that we had, to use the Batman versus Superman terms, meta-humans. Mm. This... Uh, yeah, 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 I don't, X-Men Apocalypse definitely doesn't have the same thematic heft to it or the same sort of historical engagement or any real complexity of which to speak. I think it's one of those films that by the end... For for a character, uh, for a film whose supervillain main character is called Apocalypse, you're thinking, my God, like you know, the absolute end of everything. Kind of by the end, it's pretty much the same as it was at the beginning. In certain ways, it's kind of um, and, and there's a lot of destruction. There's a lot you of know, destruction. There are implied billions, <laughs> millions killed. You know, potentially billions. I say kind it's of like, like it's in the trailer. It's all it's in the oh, okay, it's, yeah, yeah, it's in the trailer. See, the interesting thing here is that I have I don't know it's weird. I have not watched the trailers for this film, not because I'm you know, avoiding trailers. I don't want to have the spoilers, but because ultimately I was not particularly interested in this film. It was like yeah, like, you know, the X Men film. I'll go and see that. Which meant actually that when I came to watch it, it was like I know very little about this film. A Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen in this one because I don't know if they are or not. And I just kind of assumed that Wolverine was going to be in this film. And they, and then it's like everyone was saying what a, a disappointment that it was that he was in the trailer and it was akin to Spider-Man being in the Civil War trailer. It's like, oh, right, I just assumed that Wolverine was going to be in this film. I had no idea what this film was about or who was in it. And I thought we were going to do like another Days of Future Past where you get the old ones as well as the yeah, young ones. And it wasn't that. So I think that was... Rick, Rick Mail's in this? Rick Mail, oh, if only Rick Mail could be. In a timeline, an alternate universe, Rick Mail is in the X-Men franchise as well, and it's a golden age. The thing now is I thought, well, if I did know more of the story, would this would this be not as good? Because I don't know where this is going, and yeah, watching it without any real idea of what's going to happen in this film, other than that you've got the first mutant called Apocalypse and you want to end the world, that's all I knew. So for me, that was I, that might have added to my enjoyment, but yeah, presumably you, you did know more about the story than me. I knew the broad strokes. I knew, you know... Apocalypse, ancient Egyptian mutant, comes back and starts laying waste to humanity with the four horsemen, and that the X Men rise up in, you know, this iteration of the X Men rise up and, you know, do battle with him. And I knew, I knew of X Men, I know, X Men, I knew of Wolverine's inclusion because in the trailer you see him pop his claws, where you see a hand, you know, pop a set yeah. of claws, and you, by process of elimination, <laughs> it seems likely to be him. It's not a film that has any major reveals, I would say. 
anything that you can spoil other than the individual sort of other than on like a scene by scene basis it told its story in in a blockbuster way and actually seemed in a weird way a bit removed from batman versus superman and captain america in that it was like it just kind of does its own thing and the x-men films would do their own thing and it's kind of like yeah we're kind of in this universe as well but we're not really and let's not forget that we had an earlier x-men film this year with deadpool but this seemed also really really separate from deadpool the main thing for me in terms of the i mean yeah yeah the story itself is right up the back of chris packet yeah an apocalypse is kind of not a very good villain ultimately oscar isaac played under you know oscar isaac acres of acres of you know sweaty blue makeup sweaty blue and a moist makeup moist makeup and a voice modulator to that extent like sort of tom hardy in dark narratives He's kind of relying on his eyes to convey a lot of... Well, he has quite a sensuous mouth, does uh, Oscar Isaac, doesn't he? He I thought he kind of, he gives good sneer. His eyes are good. He does give good eyes. I think think Um, you were getting a completely different... Yeah, indeed. It was like (laughs) falling into the dark pools of his eyes (laughs) and looking at the the creamy (laughs) mountains of his lips. It was... uh, No, I thought, because I have to admit again, because it's... uh, I think I had a passing knowledge that Oscar Isaac was in this film. And it's like, oh, right, so he is the big blue guy. Is he? He's the big blue apocalypse guy. Okay, right. He looks nothing like Oscar Isaac. And why would you get a great actor and then yeah, put him under all that makeup so he's unrecognisable? That said, when you watch the film and see him talking and acting and blah, 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 it is, I, you can recognise it's Oscar Isaac. And, uh, and I thought he was good. He's like Ben Hardy, he's good despite the character he's playing or despite the role he's given. He gives good menace. He's like, yeah, he's one of those fundamentalist extremists who just look like they deserve to have the power that, that they're wielding that over people. The sneer of cold command. The sneer of cold command is perfect. I'm so right in my thinking that I can do anything and, yeah, the sneer of cold command. Shall we use the being so right that I can do anything as a potential... To discuss the, um, oh yes, the slight misstep the film takes. Now, I've got a regular listener to the, uh, a friend of mine, a regular listener to the podcast. I won't say his name in case he doesn't want me to. He had issues with the first X-Men movie because it opens in Auschwitz. And with Magneto being dragged from his parents, or the young Eric being dragged from his parents and um, his mother. And he tries to grab onto them and he ends up pulling the iron gate away. And it's, I thought it was quite quite a powerful moment. Sort of the, the trauma that unlocks. Yeah, indeed, that's the trauma that unlocks. The, the, the recurring word when it comes to Eric Clencher or Magneto, trauma. Trauma, is. he is, yes, he is, it's kind of like... Uh, and is he, he's, is he German? His, his character is, uh, is Polish, German. I think he's... So he's actually Polish. I think, yeah, kind of, I think that's Polish. Which explains why he's, he's living where he is in this film. I kind of wonder what it was... Yeah, trauma, of course, being a German concept. But anyway, and I thought that was quite well done. And I thought the opening of X-Men First Class was quite well done as well, when you actually spend a bit more time in Auschwitz with Eric as a young boy. Um, and, you know, all the eugenics and the Nazi biological bullshit of kind of like, yeah, what they were trying to do. And here you have someone with, with powers and they're trying to get him to use, they're trying to unlock his powers through trauma and stress. And I thought this is... You have to be so careful when you are dealing with the Holocaust um, or any kind of genocide, really, in a superhero setting. And I thought that those two films, even though my friend had a real issue with the first X-Men movie, and I think actually didn't like the film because of that opening. 
I think it's one of those things that if you're using Magneto as a villain, obviously you can. Later on in the film, he does he does reveal his tattoo, mm. um, and you, you know you could you could just leave it at that. But it's one that if you want to address how Magneto became Magneto, you need uh, Auschwitz, has, Auschwitz has to feature in some so capacity. Is, is that in the comics? Is that I, how I he... believe so? Right. Okay. It's kind of he is, he's a concentration camp survivor. Right. Okay. In this film, X Men Apocalypse. There is a whole sequence set in Auschwitz, and it comes up on screen Auschwitz with like a helicopter shot over the camp complex, and then you have Apocalypse and Magneto and Psylocke, the lady who we will talk about in a moment because you were saying some very interesting things about the origin of that character as a X X Man villain, whatever, and they are walking around Auschwitz. The idea being this was the the place that has the most pain for Eric, where and where the his whole attitude towards mankind comes from, and crystallized in that moment when he saw the absolute worst of mankind, and that drove him and drove his powers, and that's thematically interesting, but it seems so misjudged when you had the supervillains in their bright gaudy outfits and their bright gaudy skin walking around the barracks of Auschwitz and particularly the Psylocke character, the Olivia Munn character who is wearing a dominatrix uniform and fuck me boots who will just draw a sexual reaction from because she is dressed in such a fetishized way that you have a sexual reaction to that character or there is a sexual undercurrent to that character against the backdrop of Auschwitz. I'm I'm just amazed they got permission to shoot there. We think they might have built Auschwitz for the... Uh, well, there's obviously bits of it that are CGI because of what happens, but there's probably some practical kind of like yeah, set work there. It'd be interesting to see Brian Singer and the writers, what discussions they would have had around that in terms of like, yeah, because you're thinking, well, you, you built some of these sets, you built the out, you know, the external barracks... Yeah, did nobody, when you know they looked down at the construction form and saw, you know, Barrack at Auschwitz, did nobody go, maybe this isn't okay? Or when the cinematographer or, um, or Brian Singer himself looked through the viewfinder at all the colourful supervillains walking around and kind of saying their supervillain things against the backdrop of Auschwitz, did they not think, did you not think, actually, no, sorry, we just... We misjudge this. We yeah, misjudge this. We can't set this scene here. This can't be. And of course, there's a reason why they set the scene there. And there's a thing that happens. And I kind of thought, no, I'm sorry. There are certain things. This is basically the locus of human suffering on Earth. This is the place where where mankind utterly failed. And it seems it's too. There is just too much historical and cultural pain attached to this place to put it into this. At the end of the day, quite frivolous, silly X-Men film that isn't the best X-Men film. <laughs> um, and, but, but also, I think you've done this better in previous X-Men films by not putting it... Well, just by not having costume superheroes. Yeah, it's like, yeah this isn't so... Yeah, a greatest hits compilation, but this is like feels like it's being done by a cover band. Yeah, it's completely misunderstood what made the original song very good. And the original song was done quite well because didn't have them dressed up in their silly costumes. Yeah, I mean, yeah the, the original song was was heartfelt and had a little bit of nuance to it and and this one it's just some bloke on a kazoo. Yeah, it really is it, it is that it is as artless and tinted as a guy playing a kazoo. 
it wasn't ruinous. It, yeah, it wasn't one of those scenes that I thought, um, I'm sorry, you've lost me now. This is just yeah, bad taste and you've fucked your premise. But I thought, no, I'm sorry. You really should have thought thought that through a bit better because there are certain places where you can't do certain things and having a dominatrix walk around Auschwitz just seemed like, no, I'm sorry. You can just bugger off I, with that. It was certainly offensive. <laughs> but I think the entire film was so cheesy and inconsequential that I found it more difficult to condemn than if the film had actually been tr- almost... It, it's strange. It was almost as though the very thing that that made it... That should have made it in, you know, incredibly offensive somehow made it less offensive because of the light because of the lightness and the silliness that surrounded it. It's like because of course you go to Auschwitz because this is a silly, bizarre film. We because of this character's background, we have to go to Auschwitz and it's like, no you don't. You really don't. You don't have to do that. You can comment on it and we all but we all kind of know Eric's origin story anyway. But it just um and as I said, it just it just kind of reminded me of something like your yeah, SS experiment camp or those really kind of like you know pretty squalid Nazi exploitation films from the seventies where they were sex exploitation films but they were set in concentration camps or extermination camps and it all just played on the fetishistic yeah, Nazi imagery of um, their leather boots and uh, yeah the sexual undercurrent that goes with like yeah Nazi iconography and that I thought played directly into the Psylocke character. I, there is a certain earnestness about 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 well increasingly so with the x-men franchise mm. where it does think it's making some profound statement about the difference between human kinds and mutant kinds and the, the plea for tolerance yeah and oh yeah but and so, psylocke the uh the yeah the i believe her the inclusion of her character as one of the horsemen was based around essentially people i think one of the producers basically googled you know, some X-Men came across some fan art done of Psylocke, possibly with Olivia Munn in the role, and went, yeah, tick, that'll do it. Yeah. And she is basically, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong, she's, during the climax, when she's doing her thing with her kind of electrified lasso, whatever it is, and and her samurai sword, or, it's like, yeah, she's cool, she's like Lady Deathstrike from X2. Um, But without any pathos. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah, 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 With, with no, absolutely zero character, I mean, it's like, yeah, she is just muscle. Um, hired muscle for Apocalypse, who presumably... I don't know, it's kind of like... Because there were certain characters who didn't... So Magneto, he required because Magneto can literally rip the world apart. And if you you want to bring about the end of the world, then it's handy to have someone that can have that because of all the iron ore and minerals and stuff. And and metal elements within the Earth. And then... And Storm can create... does what she says, what says on the tin? She, uh, she can, you know, she. That's very, and that's very apocalyptic. That's very yep, plagues of Egypt. Indeed. And Angel, he's got the whole biblical aspect. He can fly, and Psylocke's just kind of got a, like an energy sword. So the the four horsemen of the apocalypse are: you have death, pestilence, famine, and war. And I'm thinking, well, pff, which one are you? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure because you just seem to be. Oh. Hired muscle, and I don't think anyone really needs you other than to keep some of the X Men busy. At, I know at the it's end kind of and... death and war, aren't they? There is no, there's no yeah, real yeah, famine there's or no pestilence. Yeah, there's, there's, there's not no time famine. for there to be famine or pestilence. That's right, yeah, there's no kind of. Uh, wouldn't it be more interesting to have a pestilence character, someone whose whose mere touch could bring about disease? And again, anything can work. Then you're getting into you're back into the X Men world, where it kind of you know because people worried that the mutant gene might be contagious. You could then get into 
you know, all these, again, it would have to be handled quite tastefully, but, but disease parallels and things like that, and like, you know, contagious disease and people not wanting to be touched by these people, and then that gets into race as well. I think it would, it would be more interesting to have a pestilence character than just some hot babe who looks great in like a dominatrix suit and is yeah, handy with a sword when she flies around. Well, they're doing an X-Men TV series that I believe is called Legion. And live action one? Uh, yeah, live action, Not which Legion, yeah. might give them the opportunity to do things like that. I, yeah, I believe it is um, Dan Stevens playing Professor X's son. Oh, I'll watch that. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely watch that. Okay, so um, so we've got the worst scene of the film, and I think we know what the best scene of the film is. Well, in... I thought it was the best scene of the film. What was your favourite scene in this film? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Quicksilver was yeah, my one. I, mean, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think Quicksilver was great. Uh, a scene later on I found... Well, a, a, a cameo scene later on I found very funny. Which was the... Uh, uh, well, the, uh, the, well the, it's the cameo we've mentioned previously. Uh, oh, right, yes. Yeah, so... I, I, I can't... There, there are two words I want to say. I don't know how spoilery they are. We can always edit this out, but it's kind of hillbilly Wolverine. Oh, right, yes, indeed, yeah, yeah. Him rushing around in berserker mode, and I just kept on expecting it. Ding, 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 did look pretty... Her suit. <laughs> the Quicksilver scene, and again, I don't want to spoil it, because I, I didn't know what he was going to do in this movie. I thought it was very good. And it's one of those things that you think, okay, right, so is, is this going to be the groove of X-Men films now, that you will have a certain amount of things happen, there'll be a certain amount, there will be numerous characters... Some have to rescue others. They will then have to be rescued themselves. There will be a big open space at the end where everyone can have a big fight. And Magneto will have to sort of like... Magneto will, talk will down grapple from, with him. Will grapple with his ironically genocidal impulses. Yeah. Kind of, which is never really brought out either. It's like, it's like this is interesting that he is someone who is has been born of a, you know, a terrible, terrible tragedy that happened in, in human history... But it's kind of trying to do the same thing. I mean, what's going to happen? If it happens again, surely you're just going to have, you know, Professor X For fuck's sake, <laughs> Eric! How many freaking times do we have to do this? We you gave try... you three! <laughs> We're going... You keep trying to kill everyone, and then you realise ultimately, oh, that probably wasn't the right thing to do, and I was a bit misjudged, and I had to be reminded that I'm not that guy. And it's like, well, you only that... If... And it's... it's one of those things where it's like, oh, he's great if he can forget his... You know, he's one bad night. What, that one bad night when he killed hundreds of thousands of people? It's like... Write it on a post-it. Yes. If I want to kill everybody... Like, you know, every time I feel like killing everybody... Don't! Don't. Have it on your iPhone as, like, an hourly reminder that pops up, whether you want it to or not, to say, don't kill anyone today, Eric. Um, No matter how bad you feel, or or no matter how justified it feels, ultimately, a couple of days later you'll realise, oh, no, that probably wasn't the right thing to do, was it? I should have gone to anger management. He didn't, and based on the fact that he probably killed quite a few people in this film, he didn't seem to feel anywhere near as badly, as bad about it as he should do. No, I thought, yeah, I thought that. I thought, hmm, I think, I don't know. You got over this really quickly. I don't know how much mileage there is in in the Magneto character beyond, if if they're not going to pin him down to kind of, yeah, and as you were saying, like, you know, the interesting thing about the character of Magneto in the original X-Men films played by Sir Ian McKellen was not a particularly interesting character. It's just that he was acted incredibly well by one of the great actors and was played as someone who was very, very Machiavellian. And that's a really good point, because it's like, yeah, yeah, he's not not as interesting or as um, psychologically complex as the 
as the one essayed by Fassbender. But in a way, I think this is a, just a... You're swallowing your own tail with this. You're backing yourself into a just corner. fascination. There's only so many times before your mates are going to tell you to just piss off because you're being a moron again. I like the playfulness of, of the Ian McKellen character when... Is it... In X2, Pyro says, they say you're the bad guy. And Ian McKellen sort of like, looks at him and says, mm, is that what they say? <laughs> we are like... the future, Charles, not them. <laughs> <laughs> so brilliant. I'm not sure how much uh, how much more they can do this kind of like, Eric is bad, Eric is good. Eric is, is allowed like a bit okay. of a happy life and then Eric has that life taken away. And blah, 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 blah. Let's kill lots of people. But yeah, you know, he's still got a kid. Yep, indeed, it's kind of, uh, which isn't a spoiler because, you know, Days of Future Past kind of hinted at that a little bit, didn't it? Um, that's probably what they'll explore in the next one, and it, it's weird. I had a good time with this film. I had a good time with this film because of the adventures that the characters got into that pretty much meant they kept having to rescue each other from certain scrapes and things. And the fact that the Quicksilver scene was turned up to 11. What, one thing that gets me is they do keep on forgetting that other people's powers are also fundamentally interesting. I mean, they've never really, apart from through Cerebro in the sort of global sense, dramatised, you know, they did, they did a bit in this, in, uh, in Apocalypse and All Fairness, dramatised uh, Professor X's psychic powers. You know, here's somebody who can, who can, you know, literally rumble around inside your head and surely there's a way to represent that on screen that, you know, is a little bit more abstract than just having Quicksilver run really, really fast. Every director who's directed an X-Men film um, that's had Charles as one of the main characters has never really done much with Charles, other than him being noble and dignified and being able to yeah, communicate with lots of different people around the world, and blah, blah, blah. Um, which is yeah, not a bad power to have. But it's... And there's that great scene in Dread, the Carl Urban film, um, when Judd Anderson gets inside the head of the perp who um, she needs to get information from. And it's kind of quite abstract. And there are, it kind of jumps around and it's a really good way to move the plot forwards and to... There's a little bit of the towards the climax of this film when kind there of are things it. being fought on a psychic plane, aren't there? It's kind of... Uh, I quite like where that takes place, I thought, was quite nice, that he'll always bring it to this place of safety or, you know, what he thinks is safety. But again, it was still pretty much just a punch-up. Yeah, it's like, you know, you've got psychics. Do Inception! Wouldn't an X-Men film be good if it was, like, Inception? Yeah, Brian Singer is a good director. I would say, though, that these films... That... Actually, I would say that X2 and Days of Future Past and this film are less interestingly directed than X-Men, the original yeah, X-Men. I think he... They're, they're, they're more flashy. They're more flashy, but they're more visually kind of anonymous as well. They're kind of, I mean, like, yeah, they're well... The shot's are pretty well composed. Some of the imagination in the... I mean, again, like, yeah, the quicksilver scene is you know, visually, I think, a triumph of... It's like, yeah, a triumph of spectacle. But it feels more like Matthew Vaughan. That feels more like... It really, the, yes, yes. Um, yeah, like absolutely. More, more, yeah, more sort of his sort of slightly wacky, Kingsman kick-ass... Absolutely. Whereas the original X-Men film did just feel like a noir movie. It felt more like The Usual Suspects than it does like you know, what he's doing now with X-Men films. Um, it felt less like a superhero film. Yeah, that's right. It's um, But presumably he... Well, I'm, I'm not sure if he signed on for another X-Men film, but um, it'll be interesting to see what, he come, what, what, what he's done with what it What else next. is he up to? Well, yeah, kind of thinking it's... I mean, well, actually, I quite liked, I quite liked Valkyrie, the... Uh, the Tom Cruise Hitler film I thought was quite good, but it's like he's not directed a brilliant film that's not an X Men film. Oh yeah, he's he's he's, in, he's exec producing Legion, which is the uh, TV series. All oh, right, I see. Um, 
So, I mean, I didn't actually bother with Jack the Giant Slayer. I don't know Nobody was, bothered with Jack no. the Giant Slayer. Superman Returns is kind of interesting. That's a film that I think is underrated, although uh, I saw it about three times when it came out and enjoyed it then, but I have no desire to watch that film again. And I'd say that, I mean, Apt Pupil, I thought, was just a complete misfire. I mean, yeah, he directed These Are Suspects, which is a crime classic. And is a really, really brilliantly well-made film. Uh, but like I say, but seems. But you look at his his filmography now. That seems like anomaly in terms of the. Well, I think that's because the sheer level of talent involved in that, on a scripting and an acting front. Yeah. Yeah. Means that you know it's it's very well directed in its own right, but it would have been difficult. It feels to fuck that up. Although I can, I don't know. I say that. Because the whole film is like a sleight of hand. It's it's like a magic trick. That, and that, yeah, it's probably not giving him enough credit. And obviously, then the final sort of montage sequence is amazing. I say, with, I, with I'd sufficient say care. Yeah, indeed. I'd say actually that film was a a brilliantly directed film. I mean, I think that is that is a five star classic. That film and X Men, I would say, is like kind of is a is one of the great superhero films. It's just that he seems to have lost his visual style a little bit. It's kind of like he's just a he's become a competent director. He's a once really exciting director is now a very good journeyman. Journeyman. If you give him a, a big budget, he'll give you this looking film. And if it's an X Men film, then people are probably going to want to go and see it. But really, is this what you're doing now? Yes. So, and yeah, we don't want to give away what Quicksilver does in the film, but it hasn't got the shock of the new from Days of Future Past. It then one ups it in terms of the thing that he has to do in this one. But I thought that was played really well and it had enough excitement and imagination and humour in it. It was for me the standout moment of of the film. Although I did quite like some of the yeah, some of the fisty cuffs and there's the um there's the cameo that's spoiled in the third trailer. And that was a good scene as well. It was sort of it's, it was more of an action scene, but it was very bloody, wasn't it? It was for a twelve certificate film, there's lots of injury in this film. Well, yeah, I mean I think the, it reminded me a lot of the scene that you mentioned earlier from X Two, which is what when they attack the where they attack the school the school and it's and Wolverine defends it. Yeah, there wasn't really any blood in that scene in X Two, but there was no doubt that he was using his adamantium claws to run people through and yeah. to um, basically. And you can't them really them. use them for anything else. Yeah, indeed, it's like you can't like, apart from like opening a can <laughs> or scratching you... somebody. But if you scratch someone with that, you're pretty much going to take their face off. It's a, um, it was interesting that because of the you know, the hissy fit that I got into with Batman versus Superman that had Batman you know, casually killing people. But you know, uh, but Wolverine has always killed people. Well, because he has knives attached to his hands. What the fuck else is he supposed to do with them? That's right. And it's like, but I was thinking, but he's still a superhero and he's still a good superhero. You know what Wolverine? Wolverine fights for the good guys. But he kills people, but there's something so different about watching Batman kill people and watching Wolverine kill people. And I think it's even though in Batman vs Superman he only kills the bad guys and he kills people that are trying to kill him, which is what Wolverine does in like yeah, the X-Men films, but it just it's just it's so different. It's kind of it's so and maybe it's the fact that, that Wolverine is is Weapon X. He is basically a a weapon, but I think it's also the fact that Wolverine knows that he <laughs> knows that there is a consequence to killing. Whereas Batman and Batman vs Superman just didn't seem to really care that he was killing people. It was like it was a matter of fact. Oh, I think Wolverine gets away with it because it is so ingrained in the character because he does have that sort of berserker rage mm. and because killing is presented. Uh, 
again, I think yeah, he's more matter of fact, and killing is just part of is just something he does. Whereas with Batman, killing has never been really been well, apart from yeah. a few exceptions. Well, I think there is so yeah, with one of the things that the, that lots of the um, yeah defenders of Batman versus Superman are saying is kind of like, well, if you know you can't make sense, Batman does kill. And it's like, well, no, he doesn't. And if you go back to the Dark Knight Returns, he doesn't kill people. It's, uh, there's one quite, there's one ambiguous panel where he may kill someone, but it's really not clear. And in the very good Warner Brothers animation adaptation of um, of the Dark Knight Returns, it's made very clear that he doesn't kill someone. And when you're going back to uh, to Batman killing people, it's it's back to the very very early days of the character. And I think there's one comic where he's he's in a position where he has to kill. I think there's I don't know, they're kind of like driving. I think a truck of explosives. But I could be wrong on that, but he has to blow up this truck for some reason. And there's this thing about like yeah, I, I shouldn't do it, but there's no way out of this. I have to do it. I'm back into corner little there, and then and then he kills the I think the person driving the truck. But that was a long time ago, and we've had this an evolution of the character, particularly through the Chris Nolan films, of like, this is someone who doesn't kill people. And so therefore, for Zack Snyder to go back on that seemed to, to misunderstand the character. Particularly as we, as in, even in X-Men Origins Wolverine, you get the the tragedy of the character in terms of, yeah, he accidentally kills people. He kind of like, yeah, he can't control his rage or his, or his powers. And in the first X-Men film, there's that great moment when he accidentally pins Rogue, or when it that he wakes up and Rogue is next to him and he sticks her accidentally and then she has to use her, her powers and... to get his healing power, which I thought was a really, really nice thing and that's... showed just how dangerous he can be. And that's the thing, yeah, Wolverine has been weaponised. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. His weapon so, X was, yeah. was really a great So he doesn't, have con- he doesn't have control over it in quite the same way. Yeah. And with Batman, because he's so tooled up and has... And he's supposed to be the world's greatest detective. You, you always think there's another way. So we've proven, once again, that Batman vs. Superman is a shit film. <laughs> Always comes back to that. Um, so many different ways of proving so it. So many different ways of proving it. So is there anything else that we thought about X-Men no, Apocalypse? I think we... <laughs> um, I don't know why you were doing your Christopher Lambert High- Highlander voice. Yes, yeah, I was in my kind of... If only we could get Christopher Lambert into one of these films. And in terms of the acting... I think Jennifer Lawrence, we were talking about her saying she doesn't really have a lot to do in this film other than be a beacon of inspiration for some of the younger characters. But she does that well. She is She's someone now who has a certain amount of screen presence and screen charisma and you can see why people would rally around her. She, again, can do a lot with a little. And, yeah, and obviously Fassbender is tormented. And I, and I say I really like James McAvoy yeah. because he did get... To have a certain lightness of touch and a certain joviality, and as a, as as a teacher and a leader, and you know, yeah. I, I think he's really. I, I think other the other films that you were saying probably give him more dramatic opportunities, but in this one, he's obviously so comfortable in the part. I could have done with some more of Hank McCoy, some more Beast. He, the thing is, I think I think they've kind of resolved his dramatic question, which was yeah. always how comfortable he was being his quote-unquote true self, that, you know, the, the big blue furry. But again, it does seem to see, seem to be that they're having their cake and eating it. And, of course, why would you have cake and not eat it? But I mean, anyway. this whole film is a cake that is being <laughs> eaten. It's like, but, the end, yeah, but why would he want cake and not then eat it? Anyway, so Hank, Beast, and uh, Raven, Mystique, spend as much time looking human as they 
or looking like yeah, regular yeah, Joe Schmo as they do looking like their X Men other. And you're thinking, well, kind of shouldn't I thought that I thought that Hank's whole thing was that he couldn't look human, that he was just he was like the thing, he was permanently stuck in this in this form and it was like which is I thought was one of the better moments from last stand when that kid that can cure the mutant gene for a moment and he shakes Kelsey Grammer's hand and it kind of turns back into a human hand and he looks at it and you can see for a moment the pain of like you know of him wanting to be normal and then but standing up for mutant rights and saying well that's yeah that's a hell of a gift you've got there maybe <laughs> it's that you want to eat your cake and have it right in that you want to have eaten it and yet still have the cake ah you see that oh that's which I think is what this film definitely wants to do. This film wants to eat its cake and have it. We're gonna. I'm going to. I'm going to try and land that as the way that that should work. And that's. I want to eat my cake and have it. Because of course there is one of the original X persons in this film, which is Jean Grey. Jean Grey, yes. Famke Janssen in the original films and the Wolverine, um, here played by Sophie Turner or Sansa Stark, as I believe she likes to be known. <laughs> I was saying to you, I kind of this film. There was no way this film was shot in sequence, but she seemed to get better as the film went on. I thought she seemed a bit stilted, and her accent was very wobbly at the beginning. Yeah, I just yeah, again along. I think her and um, Ty Sheridan uh, uh, as, as Cyclops and Cody Smith McPhee, we previously mentioned as Nightcrawler, and. Yeah, you know the whole the whole new cast. They don't get much to work with, and they sort of are relying on the uh, and the personalities and the character characters you sort of associate with the actors. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Because you know Sansa is a bit of a, a bit of a sort of slightly frosty and reserved in Game of Thrones, but quite frail and fabulous and unable to kind of really control her surroundings or, or feels that she has no control of her surroundings. But of course she has a great inner strength. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That's, and that's really and good Ty point. Sheridan has a sort of, you know, he's a pretty sort of a cocky, a cocky but vulnerable kid, again, which you get as Cyclops. And he's 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 been cast in Ready Player One, the new the Steven Spielberg adaptation of the book by Ernest Cline, which is just geek yeah, okay. Nirvana. Nirvana, and I was about to say he was in Tree of Life. He was the kid in Tree of Life. He was also the the kid in Mud. Right. And again, in terms of what you were saying about um, yeah, cocky but slightly vulnerable. You know, again, that's I mean, yeah, that's what he does. He does that very well. I haven't seen Joe, but I think he plays a a similar character. I, I can lend it that. to you. Yeah, he, yes, very oh, much yeah, a similar yeah, character. Yeah. And the Forger again is kind of yeah. That was a is that the John Travolta film? I it's believe good. so. Yeah, it's good that I I watched that and it was. Quite surprisingly solid for what you think of as like a John Travolta straight to DVD film. It wasn't, yeah, it was good. It was worth a look. The one thing here, though, is that, I mean, I don't know anything about the character of Jubilee. Do you know anything about the character of Jubilee? Jubilee, she basically, um, she creates fireworks. Fair enough. Hence, uh, hence, uh, who hence in name. this gets... She's, she's nothing. She's well. She's not even. I don't think she's even named. Is she? I think she might be. She's, she's, yeah, she's, yeah, she's, she's named. And she's credited as Jubilee. And she's credited, and she's, but she doesn't. She does nothing. And she's weird utterly incidental. I would say that um, yeah, Lana Condor, which is a great name. That's actually the actress's name. Great superhero name. I would like to see the script that she read, where she so they I also on this and played Jubilee because she's doing the junket rounds. She is touring this film as one of the ex women, but she is. 
literally has nothing to do with it. Th- just barely in the film. I, yeah, I don't think they had to do very much filming. I think it was just like, you know, three days of Condor. Uh, <laughs> three days of the Condor. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> there is... Oh, there is a credited horseman of pestilence, famine, death. Oh yes, war. but those were the those were the uh, horse. They were the horsemen in the original scenes. In, in the, the in the original sequence in the pyramid. Barely remember that to be honest. It's about, I thought it might be something like that. Oh yes, and um, a defeated blob. Defeated um, blob. Yeah, played so, by giant Gustav Claude Wimay. 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 Who is a guy? Who He's just a very big guy. He's a big guy. He's a wrestler. Is he a wrestler? He look an actor who looks like he does some wrestling. Yeah, he must be. Yeah, that was X Men Apocalypse. So next year we will have Untitled, Untitled Wolverine <laughs> sequel. Um, which uh, the synopsis is? The synopsis is the plot is unknown. <laughs> the plot is unknown. <laughs> um, but directed by James Mangold again, which is good because he did the Wolverine and yes, Patrick Stewart is one of the credited cast. I think, and I think that will and Stephen Merchant as well and Eric, Richard E. Grant, Eric LaSalle. Interesting cast. Boyd Holbrook, who you may have seen in Narcos. I haven't seen that, but I hear it's very good. Uh, but I did see him in Run All Night, which I thought was pretty good. I would recommend that people go and see X-Men Apocalypse if they've enjoyed the other X-Men films. See it in the cinema, big screen. Cinema, Don't yeah. see it in 3D. No, there's no, please, there is no reason to see this film in in 3D at all. Get some popcorn and your big drink and sit back and... Yeah, just enjoy the tonal inconsistencies. Yes, enjoy the tonal inconsistencies, the tinnied moment in Auschwitz. You actually can go for a you know, nip out at that point for a wee. Oh, don't, um, because it's fascinating. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's fascinating to see. So you said it was offensive. I'm not sure that it was offensive. I just so, think it was just potentially misjudged. offensive, yeah. Yeah, I think it was just like kind of... It's because it would... To be offensive, I think there had to be... Well, Intent. You could, you could be accidentally offensive, I suppose, but... I'd say for it to be offensive, it had to. It, it didn't have the intent to be offensive because he said it, it was. It was earnest. It's just that it was so misjudged. But anyway, I think there's kind of yeah. It's a. It's a three star movie. It's it's a Saturday night movie. It's um yeah. If you go along and yeah, the audience we saw, we'd seem to have a pretty good time. It's yeah. It's not as good as Days of Future Past. I I don't think it's not anywhere near. The film that First Class was. I see. I think the First Class might be the only five star X Men film. I love that film. I really, I, my, yeah. my, I think X Men X Two might be. Oh really? Oh, that's interesting. Why do you think X Two is? Uh... Because it has an, I want to say, an emotional journey, an emotional revelation behind it, and I, I think the action sequences are great. I think it's the best Wolverine film. Um, uh, Brian Cox. Yeah, he's great. Oh, yeah, I think there's just so much about that film that fundamentally works. And, you know, and Professor X facing off against Stryker's son, who's now sort of, you know, been yeah, Vince That's right, yes, indeed. Yeah, that was good. That was a great film, yeah. I need to watch it again. So, uh, yeah. so X4, what's the pun? See, if it was really good, we'd say X for excellent, or X4, extremely exciting. Given it's the nineties, yeah. Given the, given the next X Men will be set in the nineties, extreme, excellent dude, yeah, yeah, excellent adventure. Yeah, we are, we're, we're covered. Um, okay, this was not an excellent adventure. This was an extremely okay adventure that uh, we recommend you see for some absolutely wonderful bits. Lots of okay bits. One, wow, 
really misjudge bit. But anyway, X-Men Apocalypse. Shall we move on to The Nice Guys? We shall. An hour and 33 minutes into we said that we were going to keep the X-Men review to about 40 minutes. I think I don't think we need to spend too long on The Nice Guys. Which it is not to say it's not good. No, it but it's... just doesn't require that much discussion. Yeah, indeed. Which you, 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 could, you could argue that nor does yeah, the yeah. apocalypse. X-Men apocalypse. <laughs> that, that searing insight into the human condition that kind of uh, that prompted, nice... prompted 90 minutes of discussion. The film itself is only 45 minutes longer than the amount of time we were talking about it. But then again, we, we did talk about the other X-Men films as well. And I think that's kind of... Uh, there is a rich history there to, uh, to delve into. And also there was that big thing about Auschwitz that... Uh, just had to be pondered because it was just so bizarre. So, from X-Men to Nice Guys. Uh. (laughs) 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 Sorry. (laughs) Just the pin-dropping silence after that I had to fill with some kind of noise. Um, So, what is the story of Shane Black's The Nice Guys? A hapless private eye and a gruff muscle for hire investigate the apparent suicide of a porn star and the disappearance of a young girl in 1970s Los Angeles, uncovering a meaty conspiracy that may go all the way to the top, meaning they have to get to the bottom of it. So, The Nice Guys, directed by Shane Black from a script written by Shane Black and Anthony Bagarozzi. Anthony Bagarozzi is also... He's doing an adaptation of Jekyll, which is, I believe is based on the Stephen Moffat TV version that fe- that starred James Nesbitt. Oh, really? Oh, okay, that's interesting. It's also doing Doc Savage again. Which Shane with, Black is... With Shane Black. And Death Note, which is interesting, that is, that is based on the uh, Japanese manga. But his um, connection with Shane Black goes back to The Long Kiss Goodnight, for which he got a special thanks, implying that maybe there was some sort of unofficial help on that. Yeah, indeed, I would. Yes, it would be interesting to see what this guy does for a living. Um, well, he was camera and electrical department on Big Bad John back in 1990. This guy clearly knows Shane Black and is probably one of those guys that does lots of invisible writing and things like that. Anyway, they wrote the script for The Nice Guys, which is... Kiss, a kiss, riff- bang, bang in, in, the, in the 1970s. It's kiss, kiss, bang, bang with a 70s groove. Um... So, yeah, Shane Black, really interesting careers um, as this guy's had. So he wrote Leave the Weapon. I think he sold that script when he was 20. I know. BR, which is, of course, the period I call before Rob. (laughs) So before I knew you, um, (laughs) I saw Iron Man 3 um, at a screening. And Shane Black came on and introduced it and gave a Whedon-esque introduction to this film. Um, It was akin to when Joss Whedon gave the introduction to Age of Ultron and said, I'm really happy that you could come to this film that I love and hate in equal measure. Um, This film that almost fucking killed me. Shane Black came on for Iron Man 3 and kind of said, I'm really glad you guys are here. And I mean, like, yeah, this is Iron Man and it's a big thing that I did. and It's the biggest thing I've ever done. And my God, did I sort of like, yeah, have a baptism of fire with this. Look, I'm really glad you're here. I know you love your superhero films. I really, I just really, really hope you like it. I really hope you like this. I'm like, yeah. And if you don't, if you don't like it, guys, it's all on me. And I'm sorry that I fucked it up. I'm really sorry that I fucked it up. If you didn't like it, blah, blah, blah. and it was like, wow. And it was really weird because it was like, okay, right. So we are going to get an absolute car crash of a film, then are we? Because this guy has basically just apologised for fucking up Iron Man. 
And he didn't. And he didn't. And it was one of those things where it's like, I and I would say that Iron Man 3 pff, arguably is the best, the best Iron Man film in terms of like just the, from beginning to end, the best Iron Man film. And because... Shane Black is the best writer, I'd say, for Robert Downey Jr. Because yeah. his dialogue fits the natural, what you'd like to think of the natural cadences of... Robert Downey Jr. And of the like, character. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. It's like, yeah, the, just that kind of like, yeah, breezy charm. And it's kind of one of those things where you think, did Shane Black do any of the script polish on Civil War? Because that scene with Tony Stark and Aunt M is... Not Aunt M, that's from um, Wizard of Oz. Aunt May. May. <laughs> um, just has, again, just has that kind of like your breezy, effortless charm when he's sort, sort of, of riffing. Yeah, but he's really kind of attracted to this woman and it's just got to help but flirt with her. And Iron Man 3, I thought, just had more of that. Because I said, yeah, as I've said on... Another podcast, I think the first Iron Man film is you know, an hour of great superhero stuff and then an hour of, yeah, it's fine, superhero stuff. Iron Man 3, I thought, was pretty consistent from beginning to end. So it's really weird that he gave this this intro that kind of seemed to be lowering expectations through, through the floor um, and apologising for getting it so spectacularly wrong, of course. I think, I think it's hedging his bets. I think it's, he doesn't know how you guys are going to react because he's got no objectivity on it. So apologise out front. If it's shit, he's made an apology. Yep. If it's great, then you go, wow, he didn't need to apologise. No, no. And as it turns out, he didn't because that film made so much money. Yeah, that film made $409 million at the US box office and $1.2 billion around the world. I mean, he's... And it's weird because... Yeah, so he wrote uh, Lethal Weapon and yeah, sold it when he was 20 for, I think it was like, you know, a record million dollars or something like that. He made a lot of money from it. But has always said that he should never have got a single or like a sole writer credit for Lethal Weapon. Because he said that a lot of the great things about Lethal Weapon came about because of the script polishes that other writers did. So I think the, the jumping off the roof thing was someone else's idea. Um, the fact that, that Murtaugh is black was someone else's idea. It's like, yeah, they were two white cops in the original script. I think and it's, it's like, wow, because that, particularly during the late 80s, like, yeah, to have a an unhinged white character and a yeah, settled black family man with a Cosby family in this gritty police thriller was actually quite yeah, groundbreaking. I mean, it's like, you know, it seems weird for a film made in 87, but it was, it, it really did be a search Because 48 hours, the black guy's the criminal. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And that's the thing is that it's, um, and he's kind of wily and stuff like that, whereas you have a... Wisecracking and... And Murtaugh is pretty... He's too old for this shit. And he's conservative with a small C. He is pretty straight-laced. Yeah, he has has a moustache. He wears sweaters. Yes, indeed. And he's just too old for this shit. He's He's got a boat. He's got a boat. I guess I think it's a more interesting story though because they said they paid a million dollars to this young Turk and there's a, there's a story there and there's some publicity they're going to get off the back of that. If they start crediting people as doing rewrites, then yep. you know one of their biggest assets in that film is you know Bray is you know a bold new voice, bold bold new voice. Yeah, and they don't dilute that. So yep. indeed, you know, it's one of those things. You know, okay, you great, you came up with the scene where they jump off the roof. Great, you made Murtaugh black. Take your money and go. And I think the Shane Black said in that original Lethal Weapon script. The things that were his were that Riggs was a Vietnam vet who was suicidal because of the death of his wife and um, the fact that he was being investigated by internal affairs for maybe faking it to get a psycho pension and the shootout in the desert at the end when they kidnap Murtaugh's daughter and they have to go out. 
That isn't wasn't every cop in that era in film being investigated by internal affairs? Yeah, indeed, it was one of those. Oh, yeah, it was not like kind of uh, that was not a new no, no a new concept. No, no film from that era likes internal affairs and the obviously very necessary work they do, and the obviously very necessary what they do to make sure that people are not tempted by the constant trappings of criminality by just taking some of that money. And I mean, a very quick shout out to. Um, not Call of Duty, Line of Duty, yes. which the uh, the uh, the BBC series. Yeah, obviously, uh, you know, if you're not watching it, you should be. You probably are, and in which case, this is redundant. But you know, involving and a British Internal Affairs Unit, and sort of delving into the necessity of that and the corruptibility of of everybody and how we struggle against that. Yeah, indeed. Um, and also um, a shout out to a fantastic documentary called. The Seven Five, which is a documentary about um, a policeman, a New York policeman called Michael Dowd, who basically was the most corrupt cop during the eighties, and anyone who came in contact. And that's with an him, amazing. That's a pretty yeah, impressive. The most corrupt <laughs> cop in the eighties. The most corrupt New York cop in the eighties. This was a guy who lived the life of a drug dealer um, of with like a badge. A, with with a badge with impunity and whoever came into his circle was ultimately seduced and like yeah corrupted by him as well into just joining this yeah, criminal fraternity that he that he created and, and it's quite an extraordinary documentary it's well worth a look it's um internal affairs and the very good work that they do <laughs> begin to close in on him and he's clearly going to be banged to rights at some point it's only at that point does he realize just how much of a criminal he is yeah, willing to become to try and and get out moves, of it yeah. yeah indeed it's like kind of it's a, it's a great documentary it's one of those where they've probably made it into like a tv film during the during the 90s or something but well it sounds very um very this oh, the shield sounds very it yes indeed it's very much like um yeah the shield is kind of like a big action version of this which was, was based on the ramparts it was set in the ramp yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah it was based on the on the rampart squad who were a tactical unit brought in to to combat the LA gang problem problem, and had, again, impunity to act as they wanted. And, of course, and they were like, yeah, special forces, blah, 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 all these guys. Um, and they just ended up kind of like, you know, running drugs. Kicking and, uh, indoors and taking people's stashes. And... That's right. And kind of like, you're playing off one gang against another and like, you're protecting one gang to... Um, and Controlling the balance of power. and Yeah. And, and what uh, are you going to do when the cops steal your drugs? Yeah, indeed. And The Shield, which is... I think one of the great cop TV series um, is yeah loosely based on the Rampart Squad. I think it was actually going to be called Rampart um, at one point, but the Shield is a much better name because of what that means. Anyway, so um, so Lethal Weapon. Uh, so he had sole rights credit for Lethal Weapon, and always said that he shouldn't have. He's in Predator, isn't he? I mean, he is one of the actors in Predator. Um, is he? Yeah. I uh, wow, I didn't know that. Shane Black is... Oh, my... Okay, now I'm seeing it. Is, um... What's the name? Hawkins. He's the really, really dweeby one. The one who's always telling jokes. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's never clicked before now. That feels like a... And that's... I always remember watching Predator, thinking, that guy's got the same name as the guy who wrote Lethal Weapon, but just not thinking that a screenwriter could also be an actor. But, yeah, he was Hawkins in Predator and really was kind of very 
much needed in that film, I think, <laughs> because the rest of them were like, yeah, pituitary cases yeah. who kind of just, uh, yeah, we're all just walking around I don't oozing latent homoeroticism. It's, um, not, not even so much latent. Not even latent. I mean, that film, that film treats Predator shoots the male body the same way that most films shoot the female body. It is fragmented and eroticised and just all those loving camera shots of oiled muscles and stuff like that. I mean, it's kind of, uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with, you know, kind of a big slab of homoeroticism and Predator is the ultimate example of that, even more than Top Gun, I'd say. So you've got to hope that Shane Black brings it to the next tour. He's writing... And directing... Predator. The, the Predator. The Predator, that's right. Um, well, I, I I just think it's a little bit weird when you add the definite article in front. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it's like, are you doing with this what Batman Begins did with the Batman? <laughs> so, well, no, I think it's more like you know, hello, would you care to take a seat? <laughs> <laughs> I am the predator. Um, so he did *The Weapon*. He did *The Last Boy Scout*, which I thought was pretty good. He did *Last Action Hero*, which of course was not very good. Um, I, I, qu- I like. Point. I quite. Like, I like. I've got. Okay, let me phrase that. I've got a lot of affection for the last action hero, and I think that's because this is not to sound utterly patronising the way it does. This is where the age gap between the two of us comes into play because I saw the last action hero when I was eighteen, about to go to university, and it was like, I'm oh, sorry, but this is not as smart as it thinks it is. And if I'd have been a kid, maybe the idea of it would have been because that would. I think was that the first your first example of like ah. of characters breaking the fourth wall of movies it, and going into the real world? Uh, no, that that would probably... Well, depending on how... Yes, yeah. Co- uh, consciously, I was just thinking who framed Roger Rabbit, but that's something oh, yeah. different. Um, I, also, I also just love uh, Charles Dance in that film with his yeah. with his have a nice day eye and his shooting to, coming into the real world and shooting civilians and going, hello, I've shot someone. Is anybody <laughs> yes. going to arrest me? Yes, that was... <laughs> Yeah, and Tom Moon is the Reaper, and yeah, lot yeah. and, and playing with all the eighties action movies cliches, which is fun because that's something Shane Black's always done. And I think that, uh, and then he did the Long Kiss Goodnight, and the Long, um, and the Long Kiss Goodnight is, uh, I think, one of the most underrated action films. That is such a funny and clever action film, and the dialogue in that. It's funny because we will get onto the Nice Guys at some point. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we might need to split this into two separate podcasts. We we might need to final Harry Potter movie this one. Um, the my God, you mean there's gonna be an epilogue? Yeah. <laughs> the Long Kiss Goodnight is is funnier than most comedies. As is the Nice Guys. As is the Nice Guys. Yeah, Brian Cox in that film has so many wonderful lines, uh, including when Sam Jackson is. I think trying to escape or trying to break in somewhere and Brian Cox appears behind him and Brian Cox is like ex-CIA with a Scottish accent anyway it's fine and, he's got, and he puts a gun against Sam Jackson's head and said there may be many reasons for not killing you but one of them is not that you'll be missed by NASA <laughs> um, or when Sam Jackson and Gina Davis are speeding away from uh, from bad guys who've just like yeah roughed them up and Gina Davis says my god are you thinking what I'm thinking and Sam Jackson says, I hope not, because I'm thinking how much my balls hurt. <laughs> <laughs> or, um, or I, what's the Sam Jackson line? But, um, with Wern, I'm always frank and earnest. On the East Coast, I'm frank. On the West Coast, I'm earnest. That's a great line. <laughs> and and that's, that's, another thing, that's the thing about Shane Blank films. I think, above all else, they are quotable. Yeah, indeed, that's right. Yeah. He loves dialogue. He's up there with Quentin Tarantino. Indeed, and I would say kind of that it's... 
it's probably more quotable than, than Tarantino because can you quote a line from Django? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we're not on this podcast. Because <laughs> like, I don't want to be accused of race hate. Um, but can you? Can you? Okay, right. Uh, let's, yeah. let's take it a little bit easier. What, what, what's you, you had you had my my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Yeah, the accent was good, <laughs> but the, but it's not as good as. Uh, I'm Frank and Ernest. <laughs> and it's not as good as a line from the nice guys. I had to interview the mermaids. Or I had to... I, yeah, I, no, I, I had to question the mermaids. I had to question the mermaids. <laughs> which actually no makes... No context! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which makes complete sense within the context of the film. Right? It doesn't. He's making it up. So anyway, so then... He, but he famously, after the failure of The Long Kiss Goodnight, just went AWOL for years. Um... And came back with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was kind of this you know, neo-noir commentary on... How, like, classic detective stories operate. Yes, indeed. And it was like a deconstruction of that. Classic, yeah, classic sort of hard-boiled... Hard-boiled noir refracted through quite a you know, postmodern sardonic lens, wasn't it? And I think, I remember, I watched, I watched it quite recently, and there is a credit as it being loosely based on or partly based on a, on a book. Yes, that's the answer. And, is, yeah. But, it, but it's, yeah, it's very Raymond Chandler, very sort of you know, I can't, yeah, I I don't want to spoil any of it because <laughs> it, cause it is it's a tremendously enjoyable film, and I think the interplay between Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer to return <laughs> at last to Val Kilmer <laughs> is is magnificent. Mm. I think you're right, um, and Michelle Monaghan, of course, who is great. I mean, yeah, she's great. It's just got a great cast. And Kisses Bang Bang was one of those great films. It did four point five million dollars total in the in the states at the box office. I mean, it was a it just came and was just tossed away and blah blah blah. They just did not care about that film at all. It has since become, I think, a cult favorite, and it's been reappraised as one of the smartest crime films of the past ten years. And then, weirdly, I mean, that was like, and then eight years later, this guy kind of uh, writes and directs Iron Man three, and it's like one. Why the huge gap? Two. How did you get Iron Man three when your when your last film did four point five million? What was the pitch that you gave for Iron Man three? They said Shane Black's the guy for the job. I mean, obviously they they made the right decision. One point two billion at the um, you know, worldwide well, box office. They were you know they Marvel have always been up to giving projects to interesting directors, and I think he you know his writing credentials are more than established, and yeah. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang proved that he could direct. And didn't direct that though. That was directed uh, by Rennie Harland. Well, no, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was directed by. Sorry, him. I was thinking the long kick of night. Sorry, um, I'm yes. Sorry, Kiss Kiss <laughs> Bang Bang was. Well, that's yeah, that's it. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang proves he can direct, but he can direct a but, modest. But nobody, crime but nobody's directed anything on the Marvel scale when Marvel give it to them. No, that's true. It's kind of. But I suppose there were some action scenes in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And yeah, because obviously, uh, what with uh, the two directors, Miller and Lord. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, you know who directed the, and the Russo brothers. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they, uh, you know, um, they didn't have they yeah. community, wasn't it? They exactly, like, they, they had community, and they all of a sudden they're directing two hundred million dollar. Yeah, and and sorry, just looking at Shane Black's IMDb page, there's a short he did. Literally, he did a film short between Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and and Iron Man Three called AWOL, in which he plays Holly Martins. And uh, Holly and he wrote it. As oh, Holly he Martins. wrote it. He wrote yeah. it as Holly Martin's because Holly Martin's, of course, being uh, Joseph Cotton's character from The Third Man. Oh, that's nice. Um, he, didn't, he didn't direct it. He was just a writer and he took a... Must have been contractual, the reason why he did that. Um, a short? 
Yeah, indeed. He I also can... directed a TV movie in 2015 called Edge. Which I think it's a western, maybe? It's like a frontiersman thing. Anyway. It's trying Ryan Quantin's Yvonne Strahovski, who, True Blood, and Chuck. Well, Chuck, a long time ago, but... Three years after Iron Man 3, we get on to The Nice Guys. The... Do we have to? Yeah. <laughs> the third film by... <laughs> We can do this one another time if you're feeling a bit. Oh, no, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Which is Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang with a 70s groove, isn't it? It's a film... So we've given the plot synopsis. It is a film that says, I think you've probably seen Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. In Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, I laid out the... Literally, because the Rob Downey Jr. character gives it in the form of a voiceover, I've laid out the the rules for how these uh, stories work. There will be a down on his luck or a beaten up you know, private eye. Um, he will team up with someone who is just much more adept at doing this sort of investigation uh, yeah, than I um, than the private eye is. He kind of isn't it because what danger is not a private eye is like a he's a burglar. Yeah, turned yeah. A, an actor, actor, turned, yeah. turned actor. But basically, like right, there is going to be a. A slubby one who doesn't seem very good at what he does. There's one who seems much more adept at what he does. They will be embroiled in some... Conspiracy. In some conspiracy that will have... So there'll be a small case that doesn't... That just seems to be kind of easily resolved and doesn't seem to have anything to do with a big case. Uh, they will a missing com- person case. There's, there in, is in, a missing in the person case of films. Um, they will converge. So the, so the small case will become part of the bigger case. Um, there will be... Quite a few corpses that have to be disposed of in certain ways. There will be parties in plush houses in the Hollywood Hills. Yep. There will be women standing in roads. Yep, indeed. There, there will be bad parenting. There will be references to pornography. There will be, I mean, yeah, the, the sheer number of elements. I mean, they're, they're all classic sort of film noir, neo-noir, you know, elements. But, yeah, you can, there's almost a law. You can almost go through the list ticking them all off. Yeah, indeed. And I think that... In the nice guys, Shane Black really says, "Okay, we just know that you know these things now." And if you haven't seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, you've probably seen enough of these things on the you know, telly or at, at the cinema to know kind of how these films work. So, what Shane Black does with this film is say, "I'm really going to jettison plot logic, <laughs> and I'm going to have a great time with the." the characters and the dialogue and the events that happen in these films and I'm going to throw literally it seems every idea is ever thought of at the screen because this film sometimes feels like a movie directed by someone who's told this is your last movie mate so you better get it all in this one because it's just got everything in it hasn't it I mean it's it does occasionally anything that hasn't got in it actually is is animation there's no point where it's animated but there is a big puppet in it at one point there is a (laughs) Um, it does occasionally take on a slightly feverish quality (laughs) through you know the 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 vast amounts of drinking and some drug use yeah so Ryan Gosling is a is the private eye who's having to uh, investigate a missing persons Um, so there is a a porn star has died but her grandmother is it a grandmother I thought it was a it was a grand aunt. Let's say that she's her niece. Possibly. Um, a, an elderly relative. Yeah, an elderly relative is swears that she saw her... After the fact. After the fact, through the window of a house and said, no, I kind of saw her, she's, she's still alive. Um, so Ryan Gosling, even though ev- all the evidence points towards this this woman being dead, 
Um, it's Misty Mountains, that was her name, wasn't it? And uh, um, and Ryan Gosling, who's this drunk, slightly shrill PI with... with incredibly... With, uh, called Holland March. Called Holland March with a precocious daughter. Yeah. Very, very precocious daughter. Well, I got a 15 cert. Um... Anyway, um, yes, he, he he's the one that takes it, even though he's, he knows he's kind of like yeah, ripping off this woman. Russell Crowe plays... Jackson Healy. So Jackson Healy. Jackson Healy, which is a really good name. And he's he's basically someone who has had a run of bad luck and had a formative moment that has put him on this path where he basically is... Yeah, he's high of muscle. He's kind of a good guy. He'll do... He'll protect people using his his sizable kind of um, physique. I mean, he's a big he's a big lad in this film, isn't he? He wasn't that big when he introduced the film, but there's a, a you get a lot of crow in this film. He's basically physically very handy. Should we assume that that, that, that people haven't seen the trailer for the nice guys? Should we assume? Yeah, I think we have to assume that. Yeah, the red band trailer gives quite a lot away, but I couldn't remember a lot of it when I saw the film, so it didn't really spoil it for me. But I know someone who said that he wished he hadn't seen it because it did spoil a lot of things for him. But essentially, yeah, there's lots of violence uh, played for comic effect. Yeah. Lots of quotable dialogue. Lots of sort of labyrinthine plot twists. Lots of profanity done for comic effect. Lots of inappropriate things said by uh, the daughter, um, you know, by Holland's daughter, Holly, which is quite nice. It's kind of, uh, they are, because she shares a lot of the characteristics with him and uh, he, she's very much her father's daughter, played by Angory Rice. Australian actress who I thought actually was very great. Yeah. And there's a a very good hitman in this film, isn't there? It's kind of he's quite chilling. Played by Matt Bomer, who's who's uh well what would you know from he did a show called White Collar a few years ago. He's been an American horror story for the last couple of years. Okay. I'd say I did I did recognise him. I couldn't Oh, he's playing Montgomery Clift, Monty Cl- Montgomery Clift in Monty Clift, which is apparently a biopic of Montgomery Clift. Yeah, and he's also in Magnificent Seven, which is coming out. It's Magic Mike, he was in that. I must say, I wasn't. He, yeah, another Chuck returning to uh, Yvonne Strahovski, whom I mentioned a minute ago. He's, yes. He was also in Chuck. He played Bryce Larkin, who I won't go into the details of the plot <laughs> of Chuck, but it's good. It's very nice. It's very funny and light. You should watch it. I have to admit, it was, it was something that I recognised but I couldn't play, so I haven't really seen a lot of what he does. But Keith David is in this film, and Keith yes. David is, is just great. I mean, he's, um, yeah. He... Another Community. Yes, indeed, that's right, yeah. Yeah, he was in Bob. the last season of Community, wasn't he? He's very good, and he kind of fits that 70s look very well. I mean, this is, um, if we were to do some lazy comparisons, this is kind of like your yeah, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang shot as a long goodbye, isn't yes. it? With um, the... Well, actually, with the with, Rockford Files, a lot apparently there are lots of references to the Rockford Files in this film. It's um, so apparently Jim Rockford also kept his gun in a cookie jar, and uh, I mean, I never, I was yeah, the Rockford Files a little bit before my time, so I never watched it. But um, oh yeah, and of course, um, Kim Basinger, who uh, was with Russell Crowe in LA Confidential, indeed, which is I think one of she won for which she won the Oscar. That's right, yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, yeah. She's good. Yeah, she's good. Yep, yeah, she's fine. Well, Confidential for me is, is one of those Desert Island films. I can just watch that film over and over again. I think it's so, so brilliant. I have to say that Kim Bassinger, or Basinger. Basinger. Um, oh, yeah, let's go. Basinger. I, I will trust your... He probably is Basinger. I would say that 
she's had quite a bit of work done. <laughs> it seemed it has like... restricted her ability to emote somewhat. Well, she had very smooth skin in this film. Her face is very smooth in a slightly unnatural way for someone who is of a certain age now. But um, I thought, and it was a bit distracting. I thought. Kim, oh, you should because you, you know, you're a good-looking woman, but you, I think you've clearly gone under the knife and had a few Botox injections, and she's afforded a lot of close-ups in this film, and it was a little bit distracting watching it. But anyway, it's like, yeah, look at Russell; he's yeah, you know, craggy now, um, but uh, but of course he can get away with it because he's a bloke. Oh, and Go sorry, on. and uh, uh, Yaya da Costa as Tally, who feels like a definite sort of Pam Greer. Oh yes, yeah, there is a. A Pam Greer-like character in this who, uh, as you pointed out, there is, we won't spoil it here, but there is a very good visual reference to a Pam Greer film that has a key moment in this film. I had a blast with this film. And the joy of this film is basically just watching these guys pratfall their way through this um, very, as you said, labyrinthine plot. There is a huge amount of pratfalling in this and film. And even though it plays with a lot of cliches, you never know what's going to happen next. No, that's the thing, is that it really, I mean, it's kind of, you could say that that is a lack of discipline on the film's part, and I would say, yep, you're absolutely right. But when you're having that much fun and, and it's done with such elan, who cares? It's, I thought, this is, you've, you've basically gone back to the well a second time and you've pulled it off. There's something about the buddy formula at which Shane Black's incredibly adept. Yeah. And again, it's a formula, but so so are, so are a lot of things. Mm. Formulas become formulas because they work. And as long as you've got sufficiently talented people behind them, then why not fall back on something that's proven? <laughs> There's a very, very surprising thing that happens at the beginning, and that really sets the tone for the film in terms of surprising things that happen. And those surprising things that happen are often in real kind of almost you know, silent comedy type ways things that invade the frame in a, in a really unexpected way. Things that drop into frame or things like that. There, there's other things that drop into frame or things that are revealed by a character pratfalling or you know, falling over and getting up and then seeing something. I mean there's a, quite a nice reveal of a dead body that way I thought. That again is very similar to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But some of it is played. Um, he does do the uh, the convention of the of of the heavies coming round to muscle the hero and kind of like intimidate the hero. There's a good scene with Keith David as older guy and Bo Knapp as Blueface, um, and they go who, to Blueface, who looks a lot like I haven't seen the film, but <laughs> he says snobbishly uh, he looks a lot like um, Nobby from Grimsby. He looks a lot like yeah, such a Baron Cohen. Yes, he does. Well, they go to intimidate Russell Crowe's character, Jackson Healy. Of course, the tables are turned, but they're turned in quite an amusing way. There's also, I thought, an amazing scene when when Russell Crowe uh, and Ryan Gosling go to investigate or go to to check up on something in a hotel and then have to leave the backtrack. hotel. Backtrack. have to backtrack very, very quickly. And that's just the way that's played in terms of just the little bits of information that are given first through sound and then you just see something quite ugh, happening very very matter-of-factly and then something quite spectacular happens but it's all just happening in the background and there are just and that and Shane Black seems to be able to do that really well just in terms of taking something spectacular but he'll just put it in the background or put it against 
someone trying to not notice what's going on, even though it's impossible to not see what is happening here. And it just it just works fantastically. <laughs> yeah, it's clear. I mean, not only is Shane Black a great comic writer, a comedy writer and director, but he clearly has a really profound understanding of what you know, of the, all the conventions of these films and how to marry the two. Yeah, yeah, indeed, definitely. There was another thing in there that really made me laugh. I think when we watched the film, we just just sat there laughing. I mean, it's like you know, it's one of those things you just laugh over and over again at all these bizarre things that are happening. One of the interesting things is that it's set in 1977, and I only got one very oblique reference to Star Wars. There are lots of movie billboards in this film. There's Airport 77 and Jaws 2 and Smoking the Bandit, but there's not any reference to Star Wars other than a very oblique reference to a studio decision. Do you think that's a... No, fuck it, we're not giving them any more advertising. You are not referencing Star Wars. Well, I I wondered if it was, or if I wondered... Or I thought, is this just Shane Black saying, I'm going to be contrary in the same way that this film is contrary about lots of things in terms of expectations, and I'm going to name-check lots of films that came out in this year but not the biggest film of all time that came out in this year. Yeah, because it doesn't need it, I guess. Yeah, it's sort of a... It was a really good-looking film as well. I thought that sometimes the visual inspiration seemed to be the Beastie Boys sabotage video, particularly with Ryan Gosling the with his kind of uh, crumpled suit and his massive aviator shades and stuff like that, and the tash has got and that slightly gormless expression. It's like, this is, this is the sabotage video, yeah. But yeah, there's lots of long... Um, the long goodbye in there as well, I thought. And... Think of something that's not going to spoil the plot. <laughs> I don't think. I think it's not a film where you need to go into the plot because the plot is ultimately an excuse for certain comedic situations to play out. Yeah. And yeah, again, if you've seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, you'll know what to expect. And if you haven't seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, see Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah. And also this because it is a bit a blast. And I think we we both preferred Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I think. Yeah, because I think Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was our first experience of it, and I think maybe Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has the edge on quotability. Yeah, which you know sounds like such a superficial thing, but it's one of the most. It's one of the biggest pleasures of these films. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's kind of uh, trading uh, lines later, which we will. You know, we've done a bit so far, but we will resist the temptation to do more. Yeah, but I have to say that I, I thought that Ryan Gosling I and mean, Russell Crowe, I think, is just. He can do it's it's weird, I mean, because he did that film. Was it a good year? Yeah. A comedy directed by Ridley Scott that started Russell Crowe and it was like, My God, you've got the most humorless director in the world and the most humorless actor in the world in this light Hugh Grant Richard Curtis style comedy and it just fell like a lead balloon. Uh, and of course he's been directing recently. He did uh the, the water, water divider, divider. Which I hadn't seen, but I hear I hear it was pretty good. I thought that Russell Crowe gave a a pretty good comedic performance sort of wry yeah but there is some darkness I mean that's the thing is that that's the thing with Shane Black is that he will have an edge to his violence even when that violence is played for comic effect because there's a lot of people who get caught in the crossfire in this film and it's quite like who are never referred right. to never, again yeah, it's like there's a lot of collateral damage it's like Jesus alright that's wow okay that happened then there's that recurring motif of like um, of am I a good man and kind of like it's like I think it's something that Russell Crowe, the Jackson Healy and Holland March, so the Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling characters say at different points in the film. It's like, yeah, I, yeah, or I'm not a good man. Yeah, it's, um, there seems to be something going on 
beneath the surface of just all the light yeah you know, frippery and um you know casual violence and uh and the pratfalls but ultimately there are some sublime pratfalls in this film but ryan gosling i mean who knew that he See, could be such a great pratfalling gormless he's a looney tunes character he's a looney tunes character i mean there is a some of the stuff that he does is um <laughs> there are these wonderful vignettes where he keeps hurting himself or he keeps being her and it's kind of there's one point early on in the film when I thought, this kind of reminds me of, of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the Terry Gilliam film, in that you've got two pretty good-looking yeah, male leads. And yeah, Ryan Gosling, I think, yeah, most people say, is more than pretty good-looking. More than possibly. Yeah. And you've just uglified them. <laughs> it's like Made, the Vince Vaughn and John Favreau film. They just walk around that in that film with you know, bruises and cut lips because they're boxers. In this, it's like... They're all just bruised and like you know, roughed up and you know, dishevelled and things like. And they even look like they haven't really slept for a few days. And uh, particularly Ryan Gosling. And it's like this is great. You've just really uglified these two handsome leads. And uh, this whole film just has a real kind of like a beaten up look to it. It's and uh, slightly battered. Well, I guess I guess actors are willing to look battered if they can look cool. Mm. And that's a really good point. Is that they do look cool in this. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see uh, Ryan Gosling's suit, even though it didn't look out of place in a 70s film it didn't it wasn't flared trousers wasn't there weren't, no, yeah. there weren't many flares there's in this nothing film. avert to avert well to avert yeah kind of like and it was like a 70s movie but it was and there was 70s fashion but it's a great seemed, 70s soundtrack and a great 70s soundtrack but it wasn't kind of I thought they kind of they had a certain amount of artistic license with just how much of the 70s they put in there I think there was uh, yeah because there weren't many flares in that film hmm. There was, and again, we're not going to spoil it here, but uh, there was that. There is a dream sequence that does something that I've never seen in a film before, as a really good callback a bit later on. And I thought that was when I realised what was happening. I thought that was absolutely amazing. So I'm like, yeah, I've just never seen that before in a film. That's really smart and really, really funny. Um, but I, suppose, I suppose the thing here, though, is that it's like, well, yeah, Shane Black, please don't wait another. 10 years or something to do like another film but of course he's going to do The Predator it'll be interesting to see what he does with that because Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has become a cult favourite I think this will become a cult favourite I mean I yeah would definitely be watching this film again but he can't do this again I don't think I don't think he no, goes to the world a third like, time with this unless he does something completely he can make another buddy film but I don't think he can fall back on noir no, unless he does it in a really... I mean, I think... So, I think he could do a great kids movie. Um, if he did a kids movie that was... I don't like Brick, but yeah, younger than that. If he did a film with like 11-year-olds, and it was a buddy movie, and there was a conspiracy, and that kind of stuff. But so even if he all, did Zootopia? Zootopia, well, I haven't seen that. Is it kind of... Uh, I have not seen that either, but... Um, <laughs> but that sort of thing, yeah, kind of... Well, yeah. shame... Fortunately, yeah, because I hear it's one of the best films of the year. Um, but if he did something that could be like, and the conspiracy could be about um, the school being closed down or something like that, or something, yeah, kind of, and and there being like a smaller thing about yeah, someone's lunch money being stolen. It turns wit. out to be, yeah, indeed, it's all it's it, it's wit and the preposterousness of the situation. I reckon he could do, he could take this template and turn it into a really good kids movie. Um, with pretty much, I mean, like, yeah, I think there'd have to be less porn in it, even and less. 
and less references to anal. Um, but uh, but the but the heart of it would be the same, and you could actually have pretty much the same amount of violence in it as well. I think just, just with cartoonifier, yeah, just with less like you know blood squirts and uh, and stuff like that. But um, but yeah, I kind of think that if he was to do this again, then that might. Or just go the other way and do it as old people do it as um, set in like an old folks' home. It was. Uh, which would be similar to Bubba Hotep, yeah, the uh, the great Bruce Campbell, Don Coscarelli, Coscarelli film, yeah, which is just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so this was. Uh, I'm glad this was as good as I hoped it would be. Yeah, it's it it scratches an itch. It's tremendously good fun, and you know, if you go and going, yeah, kiss kiss bang bang. I like kiss king, best kiss bang bang. I want more kiss kiss bang bang. Yeah. If you if you were disappointed that there was never a sequel to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with those characters, you're kind of getting it here with good approximations of those characters by Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. Russell Crowe playing the Val Kilmer gay Perry role and Ryan Gosling playing the Rob Downey Jr. Can't remember the character name role. Uh, Harry Lockhart. Harry Lockhart. Which is another good name. So, on that note, is there anything else more to say about no, the No, I don't think there's anything left to say about film. I think we've, I just, yeah, I think we've, just, just, we've just tapped it out as a medium. <laughs> I think this has been going on for <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, I'm going to hedge my bets here. This has been a marathon recording session of X-Men Apocalypse and The Nice Guys. You, there is a strong chance you will be listening to just a podcast that focuses on the nice guys, and I might have split them in in half. But for context, this is the end of a two-hour and twenty-seven-minute recording session where Rob and I have, dis- have discussed. We've been discussing this for roughly as long as X Men Apocalypse is, you know, as as ru- the runtime of X Men Apocalypse. Longer. Um, we have been discussing this for the same runtime as Captain America: Civil War. So imagine that Captain America: Civil War started, and we started talking, and now it's ended, and we've just finished talking. That's how long we've been recording. I'm going to say I think I've enjoyed, definitely enjoyed this as much as Captain America: Civil or Captain America: Civil War. And I hope, yeah. I hope you readers, uh, you, you readers, you listeners, in whatever <laughs> form you are getting this, if you hear this bit, have enjoyed this as much as you enjoyed Captain America: Civil War. Yes, indeed. No matter whether you're listening to it as one continuous podcast or if I've decided to split it in two because it was just running way too long. But uh, time will tell on that. Um, But to finish, thank you very much, Rob. And thank you very much, Rob. (laughs) And thank you for listening. And we will see you on the next podcast.